Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, joined, as always, by... Catherine! And we are here to discuss another cinematic misfire. Um, a bit of middle of the road with this one, right? A misfire in a few ways, but a success in some others, at least in some people's eyes. And that film is 2006's Superman Returns, directed by Brian Singer. Not Hot. Richard Donner, despite Not what Richard you might Donner. think. <laughs> Not Richard Donner. No Richard Donner in this house, even though he did pitch it to the Donners while he was making X2, and that's why I got the job. But, you know, whatever. Uh, in any case, we are going to uh, discuss Superman Returns, the, I guess we could almost say the bastard child of the Superman franchise, the one that nobody really knows what to do with these days. Uh, but uh, I think we'll have quite a bit to say about it. But before we get to that, uh, what you've been watching, what you've been consuming, what's uh, taken up some time this week? I have had a ridiculously busy week um, trying to be some sort of community manager for game developers. Uh, so I've been watching <laughs> game trailers um, I work for a company called Void Point. Um, they developed a game called Ion Fury. And today, uh, just today, we announced um, an expansion for that game. So pretty much just been watching that for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, repetitive, obviously, but that's all right. <laughs> it's the same minute-long trailer. <laughs> Oh, but you got to get those edits tight. You got to get everything in there. I understand. <laughs> well, that's super cool. Very nice. Well, I have had an incredibly robust viewing week, uh, kind of out of nowhere, really. Um, we uh, rented Mulan on Friday, watched that with the kids. Uh, and that movie wants desperately to be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh. But for the kids, oh, which seems like a bold choice. Mm. <laughs> um, Is bold the word? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's beautifully directed. Nikki Caro of uh, Whale Rider fame uh, directed it, and and it's it's a gorgeous movie. Absolutely beautiful to look at. At times, sometimes it looks like a Disney movie TV set. <laughs> like, mm. the, like usually it was Aladdin had a similar problem, like where they built this huge elaborate set, but it was obviously on a soundstage and you know lit with soundstage lighting and, and well, stuff. the same like, thing happened in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I mean, all I think really, I think Cinderella might have been the only one to kind of escape it because they basically just shot in old castles, or at least good chunks of it. But but yeah, all of these live action Disney remakes they're pretty dependent upon you know, having full control of the environment to do all of the CG effects and everything else that they want. And so this movie had a bit of that, um, sort of fundamentally changes the perspective of the story. You know, obviously the, the legend of Hua Mulan is, is been around for a long time. It's, it's transitioned into myth and mythology to a certain extent. And this movie just runs headfirst at the mythological components of it. Whereas one of the things I think that made the original Mulan so such a great vehicle 
to, to for Disney to tell a Disney-like story is that it was about a sort of regular person who makes this incredibly bold choice to protect her family and then is able to do this amazing thing. But, you know, it's sort of the charm of Mulan. The draw of Mulan is that she's kind of anybody, right? This movie very quickly establishes that Mulan is special, right? Mulan has... And I... I I feel like even just saying it in this in this way is is culturally insensitive, but she's full of chi. And those are really the movie's words, not mine. She oh. has she has so much chi that if she just lets her chi flow, she's the most incredible warrior that's uh. ever lived. Um, I mean, and when they're explaining this, I just kept hearing over ten thousand. But master, that's a Yoda. <laughs> like seriously, that was the conversation I couldn't get out of my head, and I was like, "Really? We're turning Mulan into Anakin or or Rey?" And that's kind of the vibe that I got. And it, you know, it, it makes for some really cool action scenes. There's a lot of wushu style um, action in this. Again, trying desperately to be Crouching Tiger. Jade Fox from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the matchmaker in this movie. Donnie oh. Yen is in this movie. Oh. J- Jet Li is in this movie, right? So what um, you're saying is I've already seen this movie. <laughs> it's it's sort of like this weird mashup of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, House of Flying Daggers a little bit uh, as well. Uh, maybe even a bit of Hero. You know, like it just... Hmm. It's... It's not bad. Like, it, it is not a bad film at all. But it's not really Mulan outside of just the basic story of a, a, a girl pretending to be a man to go and fight for her family and, and you know, saving the Empire, all that stuff. Hmm. You know, they, they take... Obviously, Mushu's not in it. You know, she's not being... <laughs> Eddie Murphy's not in it. What? <laughs> I know. Shocking. Isn't Bullshit. It? <laughs> Um, but she's followed by a CG phoenix, which left me thinking like, well, if it's going to be a CG thing, why not a dragon? Just, you know, I mean, and I understand like culturally speaking, the dragon is, is not used in that way. You know, it's, it's another, you know, it's another attempt, I think, to be more sort of culturally aware of the of the, the symbology and behind them you know? miserably and but again it's like well if you're gonna have a, a cg thing just you know do the cg thing that we would expect like i don't understand why it couldn't be so there's some some stuff like that jason scott lee is in it he actually plays the bad guy and he's really good uh, it's been a long time since i've seen jason scott lee in anything so it's kind of nice but uh yeah so we, we watched that um Kids were so-so on it. Um, you know, we talked about it af- afterwards, and, and my daughter was kind of immediately on the same page. She didn't like the Mulan has all the chi concept, you know, and that Mulan was special. She said, I always liked that Mulan was just a regular girl like me. And, and you know, so that was a little... I was like, well, if my 11-year-old is picking up on that, that's probably not a good thing. Um, so, yeah, like that kind of stuff is a bit disappointing. Uh, so we watched that, and that was that was good, you know, good-ish. Um, but it's it's at home, it's stream on demand, which I I am completely in love with. Every movie could be that, and I would be fine. But on the opposite side of that, 
we we made specific arrangements to go see Tenet this weekend, which, you know, I was going to try to avoid, um, you know, more as a statement that, you know, I, I think it's the wrong time to push a, you know, big blockbuster movie out into theaters. But at the same time, I... You know, it's a Chris Nolan film, and I, I want to see it. Um, so we we went to see that, and uh, I won't say much because it's it's very new, and I realize a lot of people are not going to have the opportunity to see it for a while. Um, but needless to say, I think it's it's very good. Um, I've decided that Chris Nolan designs his movies. The experience of the audience is, in essence, you are being shoved down a very well-designed hallway. <laughs> and a, and every five to eight minutes, there is a loudspeaker that is blaring the same lines repeating over again that are explaining why you're being shoved down the hallway. And you, you are just sort of expected to putter along in this fashion for two-ish hours. And then by the end, there'll be a character who turns around, winks at you, and says, oh, but didn't you understand this is what was going on? And then you look back, and the hallway is like a different hallway, and you just didn't realize. Like, well, that's shit. really <laughs> and, then, and that's pretty much every Chris Nolan movie. Uh, when we got back in the car, we had a long conversation about recontextualization. That was the, the topic that we all sort of launched into, because... In essence, I think Chris Nolan's singular trick, and I don't want to say it's Shyamalan-esque, but it kind of is. <laughs> it's a twist. It's a twist. Uh, it's it's not that. It's not the single twist that you know sort of changes your understanding of the film. Like it's not that, but it is the idea that every you have been shown absolutely everything that you need to know to understand the story in the way that he wants you to understand it. But you cannot understand it until you get to the end and all of the pieces are in place, right? It is an intentionally half-finished jigsaw puzzle until he fills in the pieces. And then once you do, which normally happens in the last 10 minutes of the fucking movie, then the entire movie goes like, oh, right? So it's not really a twist. It's just that none of the pieces that you've seen from the angle that he chose to show them to you matter until you have all of the pieces in hand. Um, and that's true of Memento. That's true of Inception. It's true of the Prestige, which is the most twisty of all of them. Like the Prestige has the most obvious, like wah, wah, wah twist at the end. But it's, it seems to be the entire premise of his personal filmmaking style, right? I'm just going to, right you know, sort of half show you a story or make you think you're only seeing half until the very end when you understand that you actually understood it from the start. Well, The Prestige you know? was great source material for Christopher Nolan because it is sort of a metaphor for his filmmaking. Yeah, I think that film <laughs> had a huge impact on his personal work, right? I mean, like, the Batman movies don't really do this. They have some moments the that Batman try to. Batman movies don't count. <laughs> no, they're they're their own animal. But his personal work... Absolutely. Like the prestige, I think, is is really the tipping point for what we could now call the Chris Nolan movie. And if anything, The Dark Knight Rises had more of this in it, which is why I think a lot of people don't like that movie. 
is because he tries to do this stuff with it. And it just doesn't fit with Batman. Batman's much more straightforward, right? You don't need twisty timelines and, you know, all of that kind of stuff to make a Batman movie work. And you really shouldn't have them. Like, it's it's not important. Um, but yeah, it's, it, was, it, was a, it was a good experience. I, I really enjoyed it. There, again, Nolan crafts completely incredible visuals. Um, stuff that you've never seen anywhere else before uh, because all of his movies are really just opportunities for him to narratively justify screwing with a fundamental aspect of filmmaking, right? I'm going to screw right. with the editing. I'm going to screw with the, you know, the way the camera runs forward and backwards. I'm going to screw with time, right? Like all of those elements are just, justified narratively in a Chris Nolan film so that he can play with something that he thinks is interesting about filmmaking as a, as an art uh, and a skill. And this movie absolutely does that, especially I would say the, the final sequence, right? Which I won't, again, I don't want to spoil, but um, you know, the, the sort of final big bombastic sequence of the film uh, just has incredible stuff going on, but it's very fast and you, definitely have to pay very close attention to follow it um but he gives you all again all the pieces are there it's just a matter of like assembling them in in the the right way um but it's it's pretty glorious Uh, i'm excited to watch it again um which i you know i'm not going to go to another you know theater experience to to do that but um definitely excited to see it again i will say robert robert pattinson was great in it, I, I really the more I, the more I think about Robert Pattinson being Batman, the more cool I am with it. Um, I'm excited about it. I yeah. I was not into the Batfleck at all. Um, there are just, aspects of it that I liked, but it was really mishandled. Yeah, and I love Ben Affleck. Like I'm actually yeah. a fan of of Ben Affleck's work. Mm-hmm. However, I just don't I just don't get him as Batman. I I don't like it. Um, yeah. I don't hate it, but I just don't like it either. Well, kind of like think Val it, Kilmer's Batman. I didn't like that either. Yeah, and well, really, I mean, we've only had. I mean, Michael Keaton is still the best Batman in terms mm-hmm. of understanding that character and portraying him properly, in my opinion, because Michael Keaton understands the artifice of Bruce Wayne, like really understands the artifice of Bruce Wayne. Uh, not even I don't even think Christian Bale really ever got that that part of it. You know, he just played him like a jerk. Whereas, you know, I think he was much more believable in Keaton's hands. Um, which, you know, I, I I don't think that's an unpopular opinion at this point. You know, people no. love the Keaton Batman. Batman uh, is I, so messy at this point. You can really go in any direction with what you like. Yeah, and I kind of like, I mean, everybody expected this to be year one of Batman. You know, to, to be the, you know, the what 10 12 minute sequence in Batman Begins where Batman's kind of like figuring out how to be Batman. Everybody was kind of thinking that this movie would just be that uh for the whole movie, but now we we're realizing that it's more like Batman Year 2 where Batman's established in Gotham, he's working with the police, you know, his identity is is you know sort of like yes, I am the Batman instead of just a vigilante cracking skulls kind of thing. And you know, I'm kind of excited about that cuz he's Detective young. Work. Oh, I God, I hope so. It's it's the one thing that the movies have just been 
so bad at. And even the Nolan movies, man. The Dark Knight, like, they bullet were recreation the sequence. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, my God. When he pulls a fingerprint off of a shattered bullet in a wall, I'm like, no, stop it. That's I even enjoy work. silly technological advancements. But, again, the best Batman movie was Rocksteady's Arkham Asylum. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah, that man. I actually replayed, uh, well, I, I should say I finally finished Arkham Knight on PS4. Uh, I've had that out there for like three years. I haven't played it because I didn't really like it. I did not care for Arkham Knight. All the it's Batmobile my least st- favorite. All the Batmobile stuff is just awful, and they make you do it all the time. I don't mind driving around in it, but all like the bat tank combat is yeah. just awful. And it, and the end of the game is like ninety percent bad tank, and it sucks. Oh my god, it's just awful. Um, but I finally finished it and enjoyed it. I mean, it was still it was still good. I mean, um, but it was just a, a lesser one. Uh, I still think Asylum is the best, the best one, hands down. City is fine. I, I like City and all the Ra's al Ghul stuff, but Arkham Asylum is is a near perfect video game. Absolutely glorious. It was everything but, that I wanted the animated series to turn into, and, mm-hmm. and it happened. It yeah, perfect. basically, yeah, they, they capped that off brilliantly. <clears throat> so anyway, Lieutenant Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Pattinson, he's gonna be fine. Uh, and then in our our amazing you know weekend of too, far too much time to watch things, uh, we also watched the first season of Cobra Kai. Now that it's been added to Netflix, uh, which is dumb because we have a YouTube premium subscription as well because I can't stand YouTube ads. But um, but I, I just never watched it because uh, I love The Karate Kid. It is one of the core films of my childhood. There are numerous pictures of me in a hand-sewn karate gi made for me by my grandmother with the Mr. Miyagi Bonsai Tree logo on the back. Uh, it, it's, it was a, a, it's like a, a thing deeply rooted in me. And so the idea that they were making this sequel TV show while enticing, because I love Karate Kid, was also very scary because if it was bad, it would be soul crushing because Karate Kid, I, I mean, I can watch Karate Kid three. It's not terrible, <laughs> but, um, those movies got rough pretty quick and uh, you know so I, I just i didn't want to bear the soul crushing weight again uh but we started it just kind of like on a lark it's like eh, it's, it's here let's, let's check it out and uh man that was great oh my gosh first season of cobra kai was hella good <laughs> um and uh highly recommended to anybody that has even a passing interest in karate kid uh, William Zabka, Billy, he'll always be Billy Zabka to me. Uh, Billy Zabka is fantastic as Johnny Lawrence. Um, I don't want to see, I guess, well, I mean, the movie, it's been out for like two years, so I guess spoilers, whatever. Basically, it's an inversion of the original story. In essence, the core question that it gets around to asking is, what if you took a really sweet, nice, good kid like Daniel LaRusso, in this case, in the show, his name is Miguel. And he fell under the tutelage of Johnny. And Johnny was his sensei. 
And then what if you took like a bad apple, wrong side of the tracks, getting in trouble kid, and then he was trained by Mr. Miyagi, in this case, Daniel LaRusso. What would you get, right? So basically, what would it, what would Daniel LaRusso have been if he had joined Cobra Kai? And what would Johnny Lawrence have been if he had fallen under the teaching of Mr. Miyagi? And it sort of runs those two parallel narratives and then slams them together at the end in obvious ways, if you know the original film. <clears throat> but um, very satisfying, very nicely written. Some clunky parts. Uh, I mean, definitely there's some components that don't you know, land as well as they could, but uh, just very fun, really good, very light. You know, it's like 22-minute, 25-minute episodes. So it was pretty easy to get through, but yeah, I really enjoyed that too. So in any case, uh, watched far too much stuff. I, I need to have been more productive this weekend than I have, but. I'm ready Here to take are. a week in in your model and and start just watching things. Just um, watch all the things. Well, I mean the the event uh, that where we showed our our trailer was called Realms Deep. It's it's online both days. They they show uh, they have a recording of of the event. Um, yeah. But <laughs> leading up to this, I have done nothing fun, like nothing super you know, not related to working on this game. Um, so right. this weekend was like the first time I booted up a video game and played just on my own and had had a good time. <laughs> That's nice. Got to do that occasionally. For sure. All right. Well, uh, so yeah, I guess to, to run it down briefly, Mulan, meh, Tenet, meh, meh. Cobra Kai, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to talk about another, mm, uh, namely Superman Returns. Um, so let's let's talk a bit before we get into the the failure of Superman Returns. Let's talk a bit about context. Um, Superman Returns came out in two thousand six, and was the result of a long gestating series of attempts to reboot or at least bring back Superman. Uh, most of our understanding of these have come from insider reports, behind the scenes pictures of failed costume fittings, that kind of thing. But in essence, once Batman hit in 89 and then again, subsequently in, in 92 with Batman returns, Warner Brothers wanted Superman back. You know, they, the last couple of Superman films, you know, sort of culminating with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, which is a <laughs> film that which is a film that most people refuse to believe exists. Um and rightly so. It's it's rough. It's real bad. Um they they've wanted to they wanted to bring him back. So Burton got to take a swing uh, after his success with Batman. And, of course, that led to the Superman Lives uh, version, which, you know, I, if I remember correctly, I think that's one of the ones that Kevin Smith submitted some script writing for. Mm -hmm. Nicolas Cage was, a cast, was mm -hmm. cast as uh, Superman, which we've got some behind-the-scenes pics of that in his costume, which looked awful. Time. It was, oh yeah, it was bad. Uh, then the 
version after that, after that fell apart in the late 90s, uh, the next version was called Superman Flyby, I believe was the subtitle, or at least the working subtitle. Just that was terrible. supposed to be... It is. Uh, it, it gets worse if you don't know this this version. Uh, it was supposed to be directed by Mick G. Uh. Fresh off of uh, Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, hold on, there's more. Oh. It was going to be written by J.J. Abrams. Oh. <laughs> and was intended to be a complete reboot of the Superman mythos. Oh. Where he was no longer just a child launched into space to save his life. He was a Kryptonian prince who oh. was sent to Earth to protect us from another Kryptonian prince, I believe. Um, new character. I forget his name. It was like Cod Thun or something. Uh, I, yeah, I shit you not. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, he you know, comes to, to, to Earth and, and, you know, fighting and stuff happens. Uh, so that died quickly, uh, thankfully, because that would have been somehow even worse than, than what we did get. Um, but then, uh, fresh off of X2, Brian Singer, who was working with the Donners, um, many people may not know, but Laura Schuler Donner and her husband, Richard Donner, the director of the original Superman film, with Christopher Reeve, uh, were producers on the X-Men franchise, and they're still listed as producers on the X-Men franchise films. And uh, they also gave Kevin Feige, the current head of Marvel Studios, uh, his break. Uh, he started as a production assistant for Laura Schuler Donner when she was working on the original X-Men project and was brought in specifically because he had deep comic book knowledge. She was his, he was her go-to resource for comic book knowledge when they were asking questions about, at the script level. So, so really the Donners have a, a much larger hand in the, the launch of what we now consider superhero cinema in a bunch of different ways. Uh, obviously, the original Superman in '78 was a bombastic success at the hand, uh, with Richard Donner at the helm. Uh, this film pays tremendous homage to Superman one and two, mostly. But um, so yeah, I mean, this was a if you include this film's budget, while while difficult to pin down because you know Warner Brothers claimed they got a bunch of tax incentives for shooting in Australia. Is still north of two hundred million dollars in two thousand six, which is very expensive. If you tack on all of the production costs for the fifteen-ish years that it took to get this project going, out of the gate, it was sitting around two hundred and sixty million dollars. Right. So this movie had to make significant bank to even be considered a break-even success. So. It, it was sort of doomed to failure before it even started because no films, no superhero movies were making that kind of money at this time. Um, this Here's the shocking thing. This movie was considered a, a, a failure and a loss for the studio, and it made $50 million more than Batman Begins did. So just, just let that sink in. This huh. movie was more financially successful than Batman Begins but is considered 
a flop at the box office. Hmm. Now, again, part of that's budget. Batman Begins had a budget of like 150 million, I think. So it was quite a bit lower, all things considered. But uh, the real source is probably that this did nothing to push the character of Superman forward in the way that Warner Brothers was interested in and instead looked back. Whereas Batman Begins, you know, did a, a lot of work to sort of reestablish who Batman was. But, uh, so this this is a film that had been in trouble for a long time leading up to it. And then even when Singer got a hold of it, I imagine that there were a lot of competing forces that had a lot of ideas about what needed to be done for a Superman movie. So, context. Additional context. This film star er, is directed by and starring two human beings who have been repeatedly accused of sexual misconduct, in many cases out-and-out rape, of young men. Yeah. And uh, that is, is unfortunately a very difficult thing for me. It's, it's damaged my ability to enjoy the X-Men films in some ways. Um, it certainly damaged my ability to watch Kevin Spacey act. Um, and, and while I don't want to dwell on those issues, it certainly is a shadow that looms over this project now since both of those forces are sort of working inside of it. I don't think it ruins anything, but I can completely understand an individual who avoided this film for those two reasons alone. Um, but we'll, you know, sort of take that into consideration when we make our recommendations, you know, if it's, worth enduring that understanding um, to, to still see what's on display here. Um, I, I, you know, it, briefly, I, I still think it is for sure, but it, it does, it just kind of dirties everything in ways that I, I, I find really unfortunate. I, I um, don't necessarily believe that it's possible to um, ethically consume movies at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty rough. So for me, it the back catalog of of films made by Brian Singer of you know films starring Kevin Spacey. I don't have any problem watching and enjoying them because they're of a a time when I didn't know those things, and um, and they're they're still they're good films. I guess it's it's very similar to how people deal with Roman Polanski's body of work mm -hmm. yeah um, it's actually very similar to to that situation as well you know his life <clears throat> has a lot of tumultuousness in it anyway um and then you have you know that scandal on top of it but still you know does it mean that i don't ever want to talk about the films that he's made or, or watch the films that he's made especially considering he made what might be one of my favorite horror movies of all time um, right. so I don't know. I, I look back on films like this and I try to just remember who I was when I saw it and let that be the, the grounding force behind whether or not I recommend it to somebody. Yeah. I, again, it's something I felt was worth mentioning because it is, uh, again, a shadow that kind of looms over this project now and in many projects that took place during this time period starring these actors and, and very much like yourself. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about those circumstances and situations at the time. And, um, 
you know, I, I don't feel like it's mandatory to, as you said, to, to ethically consume media. Uh, I think that it's understandable if you don't want to. Um, makes sense. But it's it's an unfortunate, you know, it's just an unfortunate thing that, uh, you know, these, these two very, you know, a, a very good actor and a, a very, very good director, you know, have been mired in these accusations for a very long time. But... We'll move on from that. Um, I don't think this film, especially. I mean, there are certainly a lot of you know Brian Singer projects specifically where he deals with uh, homosexuality and uh, same-sex relationships and and things of that nature. Um, you know, whether metaphorically as in, in X Men or um, you know in reality in something like Apt Pupil. You know, but this film is is very distant from that. Singer is is working very close to the original Donner formula for Superman, and I don't feel like some of those particular quirks of his really, you know, sort of play out in this film. If if that's a, a thing that is important to this, you, but. this seemed like such a, a very tightly controlled project that right. whatever directorial stamp he put on it was. As minimal, I think, as as the studio could make it. Yeah, I mean, if you know, I, I think most people at this point have seen you know the evening with Kevin Smith style films, um, and or or I don't even know what you'd call those uh, comedy events. Kevin Smith you know, talks. <laughs> yeah, you know, Kevin Smith shares stories from his life, and and of course that's where you know I first heard about his involvement with the Superman franchise. And the way that he made it sound from his experience, which was just developmental in nature, you know, he wrote some scripts, he did some treat, he did a treatment, and then I think he might have turned in one script, and then you know, sort of you know, dropped from the project as it changed hands. But his interpretation of it was it was movie making by committee, right? You had this you know series of Warner Brothers executives who were dealing with the producers who were attached. Uh, who are still attached in this film. You know, the producer that he name drops in his original rundown of what uh, his experience was with John Peters, uh, who, of course, became attached after the Batman films and, and other projects. And John Peters is still listed as producer on this film, so obviously he probably still had some input. But it very much was, you know, filmmaking by large committee groupthink. And... Uh, I think that's still a bit evident in this film. Although Singer somehow got them to not do test screenings, uh, by all accounts. Uh, he convinced the studio to not do them, uh, which is intriguing. Uh, in this case, I feel like it might have actually been a good thing if they had <laughs> test screened it. Uh, might have helped. Might helped with a couple of core issues, but uh, in any case, he he convinced them. So maybe he had a bit more control. That might have been the Donners as well, sort of influencing that, because they very long careers in Hollywood carry a lot of clout, but, um, but yeah, in any case, I, I think, you know, with that out of the way, we can get down to the, the failure of the film and, and why it is considered a disaster in Hollywood, even though it was, was probably more of a middling failure than anything else. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention it, uh, in front of, Tenet was a teaser for the trailer of Dune. Oh. 
the new Denis Villeneuve version. And that teaser. It was good, wasn't it? It was real good. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is, it is real good. It opens with the line, put your hand in the box. <gasps> yeah. And then, he's like, and then it just cuts to that beautiful Timothy Chalamet face. And he says, but what's in the box? And then it's just dead silence. Beat. <laughs> pain. <laughs> and then it's just images. Right. And oh my God. the glorious images. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, it looks real, real good. Um, and it was very brief. It was, it was, it was a, it was almost a tone piece more than anything else, but, uh, they showed Stilgar, uh, Javier Bardem. Uh, we got to see wait, Dave Batista. Javier yeah. Bardem is playing Stilgar. Yes, he is. Oh, and he I guess they just good. checked into my fantasies. Like, uh, yeah. Who would you like to see play so Stilgar? Have you, not, have you not heard anything about this project yet? I, I you... don't. I don't watch or, or follow okay. anything until it becomes relevant. Because I, okay. I just don't. I just don't. I don't know. Well, they well, change sure. something I mean, on the set. Exactly. Everything in Hollywood is is flexible <laughs> until the film is actually like hitting your eyeballs. But so here's here's the cast. Okay, so Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides. Zendaya as right. Chani, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica, uh-huh. Oscar Isaac as Duke Atreides, oh. Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho, oh. Josh Bro, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Jason Momoa, Jason Momoa with like the most badass ponytail slash braid pulling his hair back into this tight. You know, super tight thing. Um, Josh Brolin as Gurney. <gasps> what? No way. <laughs> yeah. And he looks good. Oh, oh my, my God. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> this is Josh Brolin is going to be real good. Uh, Josh Brolin is Gurney Halleck. Um, I forget who's playing Helen Mohayam, but it's another like really solid actor. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, Dave Batista as the Beast Raban. Oh my god, that's perfect. And his fa- he's he we the this was this trailer was the first time we see him and his face is painted completely white. Like just all white. And he's got some kind of like big armor thing on. Um god, I'm trying to think who else. It's just so many people. Oh, who's playing uh the Baron? Crud. I completely forgot. Um Yeah, this is fascinating podcast material. I apologize, <laughs> um, but it must be told. The truth must be known. Uh, Charlotte Rampling is Helen Mohayam. Uh, oh, Chin Chang is Wellington Yui, which we got our first shot of him in this one too. Um, he's uh, old school. Uh, he was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, ironically. Um, he's in it. He plays Wellington Yui. He looks freaking perfect. Um, Stellan Skarsgård as Are Baron you... Vladimir Harkonnen. Oh, my God. This movie I is know. going to be epic. <laughs> I know. Oh, and David Destelmachian as Peter DeVries. Oh, my God. I know, wow. right? Like, dude, th- if this movie fails, it will be... 
I just don't know how because so much of this movie, so much of Dune, and the original Dune is this way too, is casting. It's just the cast. Just being able to cast these characters well and Villeneuve's is just killing it. Like it's just killing it. He just like plucked um, every dude from from my whole arsenal of dudes I love. <laughs> yeah, like Hollywood I mean, dudes I love. Yeah, but just uh I mean just Javier Bardem as Stilgar is oh, is incredible. Like, it's just it's it's gonna be so good. Yeah, he, I can't imagine. I mean, I I love the OG Stilgar. I love Everett McGill. Like he's wonderful. But Javier Bardem's pretty decent follow up, I think. Oh man! All right, sorry. All right, yeah. Dune. <laughs> Slight sidetrack. There, <laughs> yeah, but... sorry. The Dune minute is over. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll come back to it, but. Uh, and you should you just got to look at the title treatment uh, because they've it it just looks great. It's a beautifully designed title sequence. Um, oh, excuse me. So Superman returns, coming back around. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> coming back around. Uh, so the failure. Uh, I think one of the core questions that this film brought up, and really the subsequent Superman films as well. Man of Steel included, is how do you make what is essentially a pure good character work in the much more complicated world that we live in now? And I think Brian Singer, while this film is grim and it is pretty dark, I think Brian Singer is better at portraying the hopeful side of Superman, right? Yeah. The, the sort of glorious side, whereas Man of Steel leaned much harder into a deeply complicated... Well, Man of Steel is Superman Begins. That's really what it is, right? Yeah. Like, they rebooted the series to do what Batman Begins had done for Superman. But that is a fundamental misunderstanding of who Superman is as a character, who is a goody two-shoes Boy Scout. Like, that is the character. You can and make it more complicated, but you're going to lose something to do so. And right. this film at least tries to keep him in this rose gold, you know, sort of 1950s, ah, Superman, eh? You know, like, that kind of thing. I don't know. I never really understood why DC latched onto the Batman look and feel and tried to transfer that to Superman. Because if their relationship in the comic books was always sort of adversarial chums. Like, mm -hmm. they didn't see eye to eye, and that was the point. <laughs> so, right. I struggled with that. I've always struggled with that. I like this version of Superman, because it fits, it fits my version of Superman. But I did grow up on the Richard Donner movies. Same, and we'll, we'll have to address that, too. But So, I, I think that's really the core question of the film, and, and it struggles with answering it. As I think all Superman films struggle with answering it. So our Rotten Tomatoes score is actually quite high. This this film, according to Rotten Tomatoes' sort of overall approach, is actually certified fresh. Uh, it sits with a 75% um, critic score. So pretty high, right? Uh, the audience score is, is substantially lower with about 517,000 ratings currently. Uh, and that's at 61%. So in this case, the audience is less enthused about Superman Returns than the critics were, which I can completely understand. Uh, the critics probably honed in on, and, and the reviews that I read seem to 
indicate this, the homage that was happening to the original Superman films, which are extremely well regarded in critical circles. Um, so I, I can kind of see why the uh, critics would see it positively. The Metascore is a little bit lower, uh, 72, but still well within the green for a you know good film. So I did pull a, a couple of reviews that we can chat about. Um, the first one is is a positive, but it, um, it sort of addresses a couple of things that did come up in a lot of people's negative views. Uh, so this is from Scott Tobias, AV Club, one that I, I read quite a bit. There's a thin line between preserving an icon and merely delivering on an expensive franchise. But Singer's genuine connection to the Superman legend overcomes his predilection toward playing it safe. And so, again, this is a positive review. Uh, you know, you appreciate it. And if you read the whole thing, it's it's pretty obvious that Tobias liked what Singer did here. But his issue is that despite, you know, Singer really attempting to, to deliver on the promise of Superman, to connect with that character and put him into, you know, a situation that feels real, it comes off kind of flat. Right, and doesn't maybe reach the heights that uh, that it could have, right? But he does take risks, right? And I think Singer did make some decisions with this film that in definitely some fans didn't like. But also, I think he took some risks in terms of how far can you push this character out of his comfort zone? And, and I think that actually creates some interesting tension in the film. So Tobias is pretty, pretty positive, but still hitting, you know, this is a little bit. A lot of this film is very expected. It's what you would think a Superman film would be without being surprised. And then the places where it does push out of that into surprising elements sort of don't always work. And I, I think that that was a pretty common reaction. Uh, we've got this one, and I pulled this one simply because, boy... Our, our friend Dana, Dana Stevens at Slate just didn't read the room. Uh, here was the, the slug from hers. Is anyone else out there drumming their fingers waiting for the superhero craze to be over? Oh. And this was June 27th, 2006. Oh. Um, so <laughs> <Nope>. I'm imagining <laughs> that uh, Ms. Stevens is still drumming her fingers. Her fingers um, are now broken, bleeding. Yes, the fingernails are withered away to nubs. <laughs> Um, because the superhero train just kept on rolling and seems to not be uh, stopping anytime soon. Uh, all right, so we actually have a negative review from our good friend Roger Ebert. Ebert was not a fan. I of just this wouldn't be his film. kind of movie. No, he did not care for superhero stuff most of the time. Um, he went to the movies, and he talked about this a lot. He went to the movies for new experiences, right? New stories, something that could could excite him, right? Sort of like what we saw with Dark City, right? Even though Dark City was very much an amalgam of previously told stories, it was such a fresh one that he was immediately enamored with it. Yeah. But that's what Ebert did. I mean, when you watch, I, I think the last estimate that I saw, he watched something like 12,000 movies in his lifetime and wrote reviews for a third of those. You know, you... Just any old thing isn't going to work for you most of the time. Even as a casual film viewer myself, I struggle with those feelings. 
and mm-hmm. I haven't seen like any movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird place to be, but he, you know, he was still very middling on, and he gave it a two out of four was his original review score. But um, he said this is a glum lackluster movie in which even the big effect sequences seem dutiful instead of exhilarating which is kind of what tobias was saying too a lot of this feels rote right it feels like what you would expect to see in a superman movie of this kind um and and ebert was was particularly you know sort of taken aback by its dourness right there is a huge section of this film that is just superman trying to connect with people again just like is is it almost like he's saying is it okay that i'm back is that bad and you know so really what i find really ironic is that this became one of the fundamental concepts of man of steel and and the the films after that that you know does the world even need a superman what is this all about you know like these big questions about you know, godlike beings. And and this movie really delves into those, or at least tries to. It doesn't necessarily go anywhere with it, but it at least poses the question. And I just I find it fascinating that we keep coming back to that idea that the only way that we can characterize or deal with someone like Superman is to immediately start asking, well, what do you want? Some kind of savior? You know, like that kind of thing. And it's it's a very interesting approach, but Singer, you know, kind of goes there too. Um, all right, so Manola Dargis from the New York Times, uh, where once the Man of Steel flew up, up, and away, in a leaden new film, he flies down, 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 sent from above to save mankind from its sins. Which I, I pulled mostly because I think it does address this core problem of the Superman films in that he has to be characterized as a godlike savior, right? A Christ figure. Um, Man of Steel leans super hard into this. Uh, I mean, there's literally a shot at the end of the film where he's in a church talking to a priest and right behind him is a stained glass window of Christ in the garden of Gethsemane praying before his doom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the imagery could not be more blatant. The hand, it is heavy. (laughs) That is this. The hand is heavy on the shoulders of Superman. And this film goes there too. Um, you know, mostly because it connects back to the, you know, Marlon Brando Jor-El performances where, you know, he's basically telling Superman that he sent him to Earth with the intent that he would raise those people up. Another thematic idea that travels forward into Man of Steel pretty powerfully, but then we get it with Russell Crowe and so Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Badass space scientist Jor-El which uh, I love me some badass space science. I mean, I can't be upset about that. But I love me uh, some Marlon Brando. <laughs> Brando's really, it was shocking to see him in this film. I remember going to see it in the theater and being like, wow, like it's, it's nuts to just see Marlon Brando's face moving in a way that I've never seen before. It's just kind of interesting. It's almost like he's still alive. <laughs> he's still got like seventh billing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's been dead for 15 years. and <laughs> We dug seventh, him up. <laughs> seventh billing in a Superman movie. Taking him to the premiere. <laughs> um, but so I, I pulled that one mostly because it, it too sort of deals with the, the sort of darkness of the story and that Superman is being sort of pulled down to our level to serve as our savior rather than you know, lifting us up to our potential. Uh, And then finally, Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times. It's not that Superman Returns doesn't have any ideas. 
It's got too many. This is a film that tries too hard and wants too much. So this one, I think, is the other main problem. Uh, and it, it really, really reeks of a film that had been in development in various stages for years. There's a lot of ideas in this movie. And I think they carved it down as best they could. But again, I think it's film development by committee. I think a lot of people had a lot of things that they wanted to see in a Superman movie. And, you know, Singer was asked to deliver without fail. And so, you know, the, the overcomplicated nature of the ideas are, are definitely part of the issue. So the common problems uh, in reading through reviews and, and looking through some of the modern reactions, because this is a film that, again, as a lot of the ones that we've talked about already, uh, a lot of people have turned on and come back around and said, you know, that one's not so bad. Uh, Routh specifically has actually gotten a visit. Uh, he, well, he works primarily in the CW uh, you know, Arrowverse now. Uh, mm -hmm. He plays uh, the Atom on Legends of Tomorrow, or he did. I think that show might be over now. But, uh, you know, and he, he got a lot of fan love with that. And then in uh, 2019, you know, the Flash show, they do these big crossover events every year, and they've they've basically done all of the major crossover events from the DC Universe, but they had built to the Flashpoint, uh, or Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm -hmm. And last year, they actually did that, and Routh's Superman, which they said was from Earth-96, um, is brought back, and Routh got to replay this Superman, a much older version of him that was kind of also slammed together with the uh, Kal-El character from Kingdom Come, the very famous mm -hmm. Alex Ross-painted DC mm -hmm. comic, uh, where Superman is, is much older. And so they kind of smash those two things together, although there is a, a very quick sequence towards the end of it where he's back in the, the traditional costume, implying that things have changed after the Crisis on Infinite Earths event. And that was very, very well received, right? Ralph looked incredible in the suit again and, um, you know, did a great job, as he usually does. So he's been able to sort of reclaim the character to kind of put a coda on it, address the fact that, you know, so much was left hanging. Uh, there, were, there were sequel plans in place afterwards. There was supposed to be another film released in 2009, uh, but we had a writer's strike, um, whole bunch of stuff happened in between there and basically Warner Brothers decided to just cancel the you know the Routh Superman and, and move to to Man of Steel which came out in 2013 2012 you know I think Routh has has come to peace with it but it certainly does you know sort of hang out there in his career so the common problems uh that and we'll we'll talk about it, but that the the villain and the plan that the villain is attempting to enact is is pretty bad, uh, weak a weak plot, um, which I don't know if I agree with a hundred percent. I think it is a bit silly, uh, but Luther in the films has always been a bit silly, right? Uh, you know, Hackman sort of established a intelligent and potentially dangerous person, but generally was used for comedic effect and goofiness, you know, so I, I think they're still trying to do that a bit here, but maybe just because of 
species take on Luther. He's just more menacing, so people expected him to be more dangerous. But uh, so that was one common complaint. Uh, many people said that it made Superman too dark, which is just ironic as hell because boy golly, just wait till Zack Snyder gets a hold of him, then you'll have Jonathan, then you'll have Jonathan Kent telling him just let a busload of kids die. <laughs> 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 How's that for dark, dudes? Um, which I, I actually kind of like that scene because he's not telling him to let him die. It's just like, I don't know what to do in that situation. We can't let the world know you exist yet because you're like 12. But I don't know if you can run around saving all your friends if they get into trouble. But anyway, um, big complaints, uh, the length. Uh, this is a long ass movie. Right. Um, we, we've talked extensively about long ass movies. Uh, this one is up there. Uh, and in 2006, this was less common, right? This is 10 years, 12 years before Avengers Endgame broke that three hour runtime mark and people didn't seem to care. But this is two and two hour, two and a half, two hours, and a half hours plus 154 minutes full runtime. I think credits is like eight. So, I mean, it's, it's not quite two and a half hours but it's real close and and you feel it right this yeah. is not this is not a movie that <laughs> want want flies by right Ooh. it just it 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 plods right uh, i know every youtuber loves to complain about pacing in films that's the most common complaint i hear when i'm watching anything it's like oh it had pacing problems right well most movies have pacing problems because they have editing problems they're edited badly this is not that movie's problem. This is not Superman's problem. Superman's not edited badly. It's edited brilliantly. It's just too long, and it's yeah, overstuffed. This is two movies. Right? Yeah, it's it's too much stuff. So it is very, very long. We can't really deny that, but we can certainly talk about it. Uh, a lot of people complained about the expense again, that the budget was an issue. It's like, why, you know, what, why is this costing so much? Uh, which, again, I think is ironic, given that, Film production budgets just continue to skyrocket. I mean, a $300 million film is just really not that weird anymore. Um, well, so, it's weird to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's good, but it's certainly not uncommon. Uh, overstuffed with ideas and themes that don't really play out. And then uh, bombastic action that never really feels soulful. Right? It never really feels like it's got a power behind it. It's just... Well, Superman does heroic things, right? That kind of thing. So those are the common complaints. Um, so I guess we can really just kind of get down to it. Again, I don't know if we'll be able to sort of step through this movie 100% because there is so much of it. But let's talk about that title sequence. Because um, it's pretty glorious. Uh, when I was watching it, I reviewed this with my kids uh, this afternoon, and we watched it together. And... <laughs> About halfway through the title sequence, my daughter looked at me. She's like, "Why are they doing all this at the front of the movie?" <laughs> you know, and it, it is just a lesson that nobody does these full, long opening credit sequences anymore. Right? In essence, what we get are the title cards with the production companies, maybe director name, maybe a couple of other credits, actors, and then bam, movie starts. Save credits for the end. But this really, because it's it's referencing an earlier set of films. And an earlier which, style of filmmaking. An earlier style of filmmaking. That is, if anything, the most ironic component of this for me. Is that 
Richard Donner in 78 was basically referencing and establishing the Superman of the 1950s in the 1970s. And then in this film, we have Brian Singer aping, aping Richard Donner's aping of the 1950s. So we're really getting an Americanized 1950s sort of rose gold, everything's perfect. And I would even, I would even push it back to the 40s. Um, yeah, yeah. Superman even. Because there sure. was, in pop culture, there was a revival for 1940s um, stuff and nostalgia in the 1970s. And I always mm-hmm. wondered if that might have influenced how the Superman films were made. Yeah, very famously, this was the same. I mean, it was a few years later, but like um, the Christmas Story, right? Like that guy had yeah. been trying to make that project for years. And all it is is a love letter to 40s and 50s America. You know, so, I mean, the same thing with uh, uh, American Graffiti, mm-hmm. Happy Days, you know, which was a, you know, sort of bastardized version for television of that film. It's Americana, and that's really what Superman represents in my head, is, is that kind of big, like you said, rose gold American flag waving behind him. I mean, he's just become mm-hmm. that icon. Truth, justice, right. the American way. And that's where he found his initial success, too. I mean, you know, there there were... I remember growing up watching the the 50s Superman TV show with George Reeves, uh, which they reference, and, and, you know, Lex Luthor's paramour in this film is the Lois Lane from the 1950s George Reeves. Superman, the Jimmy Olsen from that is the bartender, right? So, I mean, they... This is a very careful and respectful look at the Donner films, which the Donner films were a respectful look at this much earlier time where Superman had found this initial success in pop culture and, and tried to sort of bring that in. So the the title sequence is basically a, a CG'd up version of the opening title credits of the original Superman with the, the 3D you know, sort of names stretching in, but it looks great. Um, I guess theoretically, I mean, in terms of what we're seeing, we are watching the remnants of Krypton after its explosion, sort of flying through space and then eventually hitting Earth, which is a a key plot point in the film, the, you know, the presence of kryptonite and and crystals from Krypton uh, on the planet. So, I mean, that's really what we're watching is, is the transition of those as it's happening. But again, this sequence is long. I mean, this is almost what five, six minutes of the opening credits, which is just really uncommon. Uh, but we do get the the John Williams title theme, which oh, is so one beautiful. of oh my god, it's one of the most iconic. It's one of the most iconic scores in the history of film. I know it's another you know one in the legend books for John Williams. Uh, but man, is it something! And it's so good to hear it, to hear it in its in its full glory, right? They did not try to update it. You know, there's no Steve Vai guitar lick in the background, which would have been like the most 2006 thing I could possibly think of. Is just to have some like, you know, like guitar <laughs> terrible player, new metal opening. <laughs> yeah, just like new metal wailing over the top of it or something. Just you know, and and and. I mean, honestly, in McGee's hands, who knows? I mean, like, it might have been freaking Limp Biscuit doing their version 
Oh, oh, that entire project just makes me <laughs> so, so angry. Um, but in, in any case, like it's, it's a beautiful credit sequence. It's a, you know, it, it almost feels like, again, those, those old movies from the forties and fifties that opened with, you know, the overture, right. Where you get just like, here's, here's the music that you're about to hear in our little film. Right. When it feels like and, an idea that's very connected to theater in its roots, because the establishing of, you know, themes and that the music and like you said, overture, like there's, we used to do that more in movies where we had these sort of establishing credits that would set a tone and right. we moved away from that. Almost like we want to surprise you with a tone. The last really, well, not the last, but I think one of the only truly iconic opening credit sequences for a long time. Like, I, I, I love credit sequences. There's a really good website called Art of the Title that breaks down title and credit sequences. They do a lot of TV shows, like Stranger Things. They did one for them, yeah. which... It's really good. I mean, but it's a really, really great website if you have any interest in sort of like title creation. But there are companies that this is their entire focus. This is all they do is create these title sequences for films and TV shows. And, yeah. and just the amount of energy and time and effort put into getting these things right. But one of the best ones of all time, in my opinion, is Seven. Yeah. Um, the title sequence in Seven does more to establish what that film is and what you are in for than so, so many films of that era. Uh, it's one of the things that I think sets that movie apart. You know, it's set to uh, a beautiful remix of Closer by Nine Inch Nails that is totally perfect for the film and, and the sequence itself. It's just great. And Fincher usually does have great title sequences, although I feel like that's one of the last ones that he did that was innately tied to the story of the film rather than being a kind of almost music video tone piece. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, which is right. beautiful, but it's it's really just, here's a cool song, and then you're going to see cool. some... It's just cool. Yeah, it's just, it's cool looking. Um, you know, it, and, and a lot of his films now, the opening titles feel like that more than anything, but... In any case, it's it's a really cool opening. It immediately connects it to the Donner films. If you have seen Superman 78 or Superman 2, you know what you are in for. And, and I think that that's a really good thing. Because Singer is obviously working very hard right off the bat to say, we're in that world. It's not necessarily this, you know, the same world exactly. You know, they completely you know, ignore Superman three and four, which is good. Yeah. Those never happen. Yeah. Just don't worry about it. Although I do. Well, I don't love it, but the, the she gets turned into a robot sequence from Superman three will, <laughs> haunt, will haunt me in my dreams forever. Uh, so terrifying when I was a kid, I remember watching it and just being absolutely mortified. This, this, the, that lady's scream when she gets pulled into that thing. Oh my god. So I'm not glad I'm not I'm not unhappy that they forget that it exists, but I, I remember it. Um so we we get through the title sequence and one of the things I don't like about this film is that well, I don't want to say I don't like about it, but one of the questionable choices for the script is 
that Superman has been gone. Everything depends on it. So this movie doesn't exist unless Superman is gone. But I just disagree with Superman leaving for years on a fact-finding mission to find out if Krypton still exists. I just, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, apparently this was Singer's pitch, was that Superman had left and that he was coming back. Superman returns, literally. And and that's what they got into. And, and that's, so, I mean, that was always the plan. But I just, fundamentally, I don't know if it was the right choice to bring Superman back in this way. It, it makes a certain amount of sense because Superman had been gone from the popular, popular consciousness for a long time and was coming back. But it, it just, it sets so many of the characters in the film at odds with Superman right off the bat that I just don't know if it was a great choice. I liked that it was a step in the direction of, uh, this is funny, humanizing Superman, not human. Um, right. But it it made him a little more approachable when he comes back. Because the one thing mm -hmm. about Superman is that he can be very aloof. Um, oh, yeah. Because he's, he can't relate to human beings. Um, right. And the one thing that Christopher Reeve really brought to Superman was relatability. He, he managed to have that kind of, you know, alien beauty and alien perfection. But yet he had that likable aspect um and i kind of wonder if maybe they were afraid they wouldn't be able to recapture that <laughs> even though oh, like, i think ralph they were very fantastic. afraid ralph is really good but I, I think what we've we've actually seen this problem already play out again in the marvel cinematic universe because the marvel cinematic universe doesn't work without captain america and captain america doesn't work without chris evans Right, it is Chris Evans' sincerity, his complete commitment to playing this slightly goofy, cheesy and, character with absolute conviction, yeah. and and that's what Reeve did, and that's why Reeve worked. I mean, the best, not the best line, but one of the best lines in this movie is just a line that Christopher Reeve already said in the original Superman, which is, I hope this hasn't put you off flying. Statistically speaking, it's still the so safest, the safest way, to travel. way to travel. <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of stuff, that sort of like literal Boy Scout help the old lady across the road. Well, I, I hope you make it through next time, ma'am. You know, like that kind of stuff is is sort of essential to, if not the reality of Superman, because Superman in the comics, I think, especially since really the death of Superman arc in the nineties um, has, they, they continually tried to push him in a more complicated direction, right? The, I, I, this has been a long time thing at DC comics to try and make Superman more dangerous, more mysterious, right? And then we've always had the sort of Elseworlds comics or, you know, um, the new 52 with, you know, the Darwin cook did where you get these much more, you know, sort of traditional presentations of Superman, but they've been desperate to make him more relatable. Really? I mean, like, I don't know why they're desperate to, I mean, he's an alien. He doesn't have to be relatable, but it seems like that their core, they want him, they want people to understand who Superman is. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. The, the character is easy to understand. Right? There's no thought required because Superman will always do the right thing. 
right? Like that is literally who Superman is. And so like, unfortunately that makes for boring storytelling. Yeah. And I think that most of the, the people who have tried to work in the Superman you know, universe of stories, that's their main problem is like, well, Superman would, would never do that. Superman <laughs> would never do that. Right. And then, <laughs> you know, man of steel, they took the approach that, well, that Superman, you know, the Superman that would never do that doesn't exist yet. He hasn't learned how to be that guy yet. The hell like and, that. <laughs> and, and that, that was the approach they took. I completely understand why they took it again it's you could basically just call that movie superman begins the problem is is that how can you come back from that right when you're an all-powerful super being and the world just watched you murder another all-powerful super being how do you go from murdering all-powerful super beings to being that good guy that's going to help you get your cat down out of the tree right you can't necessarily make that transition back can we snap um, the cat's neck? <laughs> well, that would be the question, right? Little Susie's going to be like, but are you going to kill him like you killed Zod? <laughs> uh, and, and so, like, I understand the the drive. And this movie does it by, again, distancing Superman from the people around him. He has to sort of be reintroduced to the world. Um, and then, of course, the other sort of major issue that comic book fans had with the film, which is that somehow, never explained, or at least not in the scenes that were shown, it's ever explained, uh, Superman has fathered a child. And in, <laughs> and in becoming a father, he is vulnerable and, and perhaps for the first time truly connected to humanity as... I'm just filled with Kevin as a Smith member. jokes at, at yeah, Superman getting someone pregnant. I, I'm an immature yeah, person. I mean, <laughs> it's... But it's true. I mean, that's that's the the film has no problem dealing with the other mechanics of being Superman. You know, after Superman saves the world at the end of the film, he's injured. They take him to the hospital, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. But they just straight take him to Metropolis General Hospital, I guess. And I thought that was bed. kind of cute because no, it's a good scene. How but... would we know what to do with Superman? Where where even right. is his heart? <laughs> yeah, like what is this? And so as soon as they pull the kryptonite out, you know, they're trying to like, you know, stab him with a needle and just, you know, bend or breaks <laughs> or whatever. And he blows up the the <laughs> the AED machine because, you know, well, it's, it's just going to reflect it back. And, and so he's like, but, you know, then we have like the how does Superman shave? Oh, well, he takes a mirror and he uses heat vision and he burns the hair off <laughs> and it's like, come on, right? The histrionics to, to solve Superman as an equation is always if hilarious. Jesus to me, but... could microwave a burrito so hot that he <laughs> himself could not eat it. Exactly. All of these philosophical questions about so Superman. So deep, so deep. But so, um, what we find ourselves in is, is a, Situation, Superman's been gone. Uh, Lex has used Superman's absence to get out of prison. And he has uh, stolen the wealth of, uh, again, uh, a woman played by the original Lois Lane from the 50s TV show with George Reeves. And he uh, gets her to sign over all of her her money to him uh, and her super yacht, uh, which the <laughs> film is very in love with. The movie loves this boat. 
It is so <laughs> excited that it has this boat. It is a really um, nice boat. It's a very nice boat. Um, but I don't know why it has a little model of the boat that it shows that, oh, this is the boat we're going to be on. And then we're on the boat for a long time. It's just there's a lot of boat stuff in here, which I don't I mean, I don't know. If, did Brian Singer get to keep the boat? Was that the issue? Is he was like Brian a Hollywood Singer, like, boat person? Is he a boat guy? I don't know. But so uh, so Lev, uh, Lev but uh, Lex, he uh, he gets his his wish. Right? He's wealthy again. And uh, immediately, like ditches the the you know robs this lady blind basically, and then just ditches her family is standing around waiting for the results of the will and all this different stuff. And it's it's very cool, you know. It's a pretty Lex Luthor move. Uh, it's gross, but it's it's Lex Luthory, so I can't really fault him for that. But then uh, Superman returns. Right, we get a a ship that looks very much like the you know original vessel that brought him to earth but scaled up obviously you're going to need more space in there and uh it crashes back into his farm in Kansas he arrives home and then we get some really sweet flashbacks right so Clark is sort of standing looking out over the cornfields and he's remembering back to uh you know basically learning to fly the first time that he realized that he could could actually suspend himself in air and this is the kind of scene that frankly man of steel and subsequent superman movies are missing right the the abundant joy of realizing the power that rests at your fingertips and what you can use it for um, you know, Man of Steel tried to have this with the, the first Superman flying sequence, but it's, it's almost a throwaway, right? I mean, I, I do enjoy watching it as he sort of, you know, Snyder's version of Superman's flight power is like he's gathering up the, you know, gravity around him or something. Uh, you know, it's very visceral, very powerful, exactly what you'd expect from a Zack Snyder joint. But this one is just, oh, he's a kid. There's these cornfields. Nobody can see him. He's out here. There's miles of country with nobody around. And he's just like jumping as far as he can. And then he realizes after screwing up that he can fly. And it's it's just a really beautiful moment. It's shot well. It uh, there is great in 3D. Yes, yes. This This film was also on the 3D train. Uh, it is the unfortunate, there is a lot of CG body doubling in this movie, and a lot of it looks really good, uh, surprisingly good, but some of it looks real bad. Uh, there is, is some bad CG body doubling in, in Superman Returns. And uh, there's a little bit in that sequence, but it's it's not enough to take away from the, the joyousness of the moment. It feels a lot like, and, and I think it was designed to intentionally echo back, to you know, young high school aged Clark like running outrunning the train in uh, in Kansas, and the little girl seeing him, and and that little girl in the train was supposed to be Lois, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's supposed to be her. But anyway, like it's it's just evocative of those moments, and there are many many moments in Superman Returns that are either direct callbacks, like shot for shot callbacks, or tonal callbacks to scenes from the Donner films. And again, he's it's Singer working very specifically to tie the, these films together, despite being made you know, twenty five years apart. And and I really enjoy them as as big fans of seventy eight and uh, the original Superman seventy eight and Superman two. 
even though Superman 2 is a much weirder film than Superman 1. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I, I think, you know, Ralph is basically just thrown into the mix. He doesn't really get an introduction in the movie when you think about it, right? He crashes back. His mom sort of takes him inside. He wakes up the next morning. And and then really we see him sort of reflecting him back on the past. And then we see him sort of checking in with the world, right? We get that scene where he's kind of agitated, like flipping through the news channels. And there's so much bad stuff going on, you know, people dying and all these struggles. And, and he's just kind of flipping through really fast and he's really uncomfortable. He's like, oh, I can't believe things have gone so badly, right? And that's where kind of the savior complex starts with this, I guess, is in that sequence. But I think Ralph, you know, if, if we really want to address it right off the bat, I, I think he kills it in this movie. Like, this is he really is, his first big he role. He is wonderful. You know? I think if you're not really paying attention to the subtleties of what he's doing, I think it's very easy to read his performance as a Christopher Reeve impersonation, uh, which many people did and, and, and did not care for. I do not see it that way at all. And I didn't at the time either. Uh, there are certainly moments where the vocal rhythms and the, the sort of overall approach to his movement, you can tell is definitely inspired by Chris Reeves' performance. Uh, because, I'm sorry, if you go back and watch, especially Superman 1, he is so, Christopher Reeve is so good in that movie especially in those transitions from Superman to Clark Kent and vice versa. They are so well done. Like people tend to forget that Christopher Reeve was a Juilliard trained actor, right? Like he was not hired because of his beefcake potential, right? That he had that too. He had beefcake potential. <laughs> he had that too, but he was hired because he was a really freaking good actor. And, and Routh, while he may not be at that level, like I'm, I'm certainly not claiming that Brandon Routh is, is Christopher Reeve reborn in terms of acting skill. I think he's trying to bring a lot of the same things to the character, right? There is a goofiness to Clark Kent that is really, really hard to grasp because it's, it's intentional goofiness that has to read as non-intentional, right? Superman is never going to stumble. He's never going to drop something. He's never going to He's not knock something over, right? He's not that guy. And so when he is trying to pretend to be that guy, it has to feel completely and utterly natural. And I think Ralph does an excellent job at playing those two pieces. There's a lot of stuff, you know, I guess, you know, he, we very quickly transition to the Daily Planet, which is, again, feels like a callback to the original uh, film because that one... You know, it was Clark saying, oh, I'm going to the big city. And then, bam, open doors, Daily Planet. <clears throat> and it feels very much like that transition again. But as he's going through and getting reintroduced to everybody at the planet, discovering that Lois has moved on, there are a lot of sequences where he is in, you know, Clark mode, but he has that, the steely gaze of Superman. And and you can feel that transition when, you know, Jimmy Olsen's, comes up behind him and slaps him on the back. He's like, hey, what's up, Clark? And, and you can see the, the the transitions between them, which I think is really good and hard to pull off. Again, it's one of the reasons why I think Michael Keaton's the best the best Batman is because he you saw when he changed into Batman before he ever put the Batman suit on. Yeah. 
right? And it was that just those is... little facial changes. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to do. And and Routh is really doing it well here. Um, he was inexperienced at this time. I mean, he'd, he'd been acting for a while, but he had, this is his biggest, you know, most high-profile role at this point. So maybe somebody with a bit more experience, but I think seeing someone that we don't know is is a better choice in this case. Like I, yeah. I think it was better they went with a relative unknown to try and do this. Because if it had been anybody recognizable trying to play this character, I mean, look at the trouble that Henry Cavill's had. I mean, like, and I think on the whole, Cavill is a fine Superman. Yeah, he's, if anything, a, he's a really good actor. Yeah, he's a great actor. And I think, if anything, they've forced him to be so restrained in his Superman portrayal. Maybe not forced, but I think encouraged. That I think if they'd let him open up and be a little bit goofy... You know, a little bit Boy Scoutish, which I think Joss Whedon tried to do in Justice League, but it mostly falls flat, mostly because of Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon but, sucks. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it would be. I, I think people would like him a lot more in the part. But regardless, um, you know, so Ralph gets reintroduced to the world. The main sort of devastating news is that Lois Lane has moved on, right? And the intervening, because uh, he's been gone for five years. Um, on his his wild goose chase to see if there's anything left of Krypton for him to understand. Which, in in getting ready for this, did you know that Cal Penn, his character, was supposed to be much larger in the original cut? Really? And he was a disgraced science reporter for the Daily Planet who had taken a bribe from Lex Luthor to plant false information about the existence of Krypton so that Superman would leave. And, like, the whole thing was Lex Luthor's plan from the start. Like, Krypton was never there, and he was never going to find anything, but this guy, this, this you know, Cal Penn's character, had planted this evidence, and Lex suspected that Superman would go investigate. Thought that there was a chance that Krypton was still there. So, like, the whole... Because Lex gets out because Superman's not there at his appeals trial to testify against him. And so they have to let him go. And that was like the plan all along. But that, that subplot was cut, which I don't, I don't know. How would you feel if that was still in the movie? Would it change anything for you? It would have made Lex Luthor a bit more diabolical. Hmm. Cause that's a lot of foresight that in general, the character has not always had. Um, I mean, he's very, he's diabolical when it comes to real estate scams, but, <laughs> right. you know, super villainy. <laughs> Not really. Um, yeah. Always been kind of a weaker villain in that regard. That might have, I mean, that would have been really cool, but it would have also added more time to the movie. Right. I can't I imagine just, them explaining that subplot away in a, in a super short dialogue scene. But you know, I'm thinking of all the other that. stuff they could have cut in favor of this. <laughs> Right. Uh, of which there are many. So we very quickly find out that, you know, Lo- again, Lois has moved on. Clark is kind of out of place. Um, I the I don't really buy... Jimmy Olsen's really the only person that's excited to see Clark again, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, not that Clark was ever popular in any of the Superman films, but... This just read like people were so dismissive, including Lois, yeah. was so dismissive of of him 
And, you know, it, the film is definitely playing fast and loose with what it wants to acknowledge from Superman one and two. So that's fine. You know, I, you don't have to, I'm not going to be a, a canon stooge. It's like, well, you know, in, in Superman two, she, he takes her to the forest to solitude. Like, like, no, I, I, I don't care. Like, it's fine. If you want to pretend that that didn't happen, nobody, these are movies. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Again, I was just, I was shocked at how chilly, Clark's reception was and I, I I just wasn't expecting that but I guess if if you're sort of like b-tier reporter disappeared for five years and then showed up again I guess it does make sense that not everybody would be like super excited to see him uh, but at least Jimmy Olsen cub reporter is very excited I think those scenes um, are so cute when he surprises him with that cake yeah Sam Huntington what a underrated dude uh, I like Sam Huntington a lot uh, he did a TV show with Sam Witwer uh, a couple years ago called Being Human, uh, which yeah. was really solid. Uh, my wife got into that. My wife hates vampire shit. Like, <laughs> she's not into vampires at all. Never has been. I even tried to get her to watch uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula pretty early in our, our marriage. And and she just tapped out, which, I mean, it's not a good movie, so it's fine. But, yeah, that was a bad thing. But, Should have picked Blade. <laughs> if, yeah, I think she can handle Blade, right? Blade's, you know, beating vampires to death. But, <laughs> um, oh, another weird fact I heard. I don't know if you saw this or not, but apparently on one of the DVD extras for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Roman Coppola just offhandedly drops... That Johnny Knoxville was Keanu Reeves' stand-in for that movie. What? Yeah. So, like, the scene where he's, like, hung upside down when they were getting, like, the lighting rigs and everything, like, set up. That was Johnny Knoxville. Like, what the hell? What a weird confluence of events. But, yeah. Anyway, I saw that. I was like, what? Okay. But, anyway, she's not into vampire stuff at all. And, and... You know, like, just has has no desire to watch any of that stuff. And she loved being human. Um, but uh, he's... Sam Huntington is fantastic in that show. Sam and Sam Witwer both. But... Um, but yeah, Sam Huntington is, is a really good Jimmy Olsen. Um, who actually gets... To like, to, like, do things and be, like, a cool reporter guy... Unlike the Jimmy Olsen in the Man of Steel universe, who is summarily executed by an African warlord uh, in the deleted scenes for the film. Because, mm. <laughs> you know, that's how we want to see Jimmy Olsen go out, right? Is being shot in the face by an AK-47. Thank you, Zach. Snyder. Grim. Yeah, grim dark, baby. It's the only way to go. Uh, but in any case, so... The, most of that stuff works really well, and and Ralph is is working very hard to establish himself as the new Clark Kent. But of course, as as all things do, uh, things go awry, right? So Lex Luthor has traveled to the Fortress of Solitude. It's never explained how he knows where it is, or well, did he go there? He went there in Superman Two, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he went there with Zod and the crew. So he was aware of its existence, not exactly where, but that it was out there somewhere. So he goes back 
and he steals uh, Superman's crystals, right? The the data crystals that his father sent with him that contain all of the knowledge of Krypton. Um, he realizes that these crystals have powers and properties being alien and foreign material. Uh, because in the original Superman, you know, he takes one of those crystals, throws it into the Arctic, and then it builds the Fortress of Solitude. So taking that as a principle of how the crystals work, Luther, uh, in his experimentations, discovers that the crystals, when mixed with water from our oceans, is capable of creating these massive, what he presumes are Kryptonian structures. And so he steals these, they do a little experiment, and I'm not going to say it's my favorite scene in the film, but by God, it's up there. This uh, The super rich lady that he stole all the money from has an entire basement that is a, a train model country. Train it's like model train village, but it's huge. And they decide to test the crystals the power of the crystals in like a little pond in the middle of that and basically what singer uses it uses it for is to provide us with like the same apocalypse style sequences from superman where you know because at the end of that film you know the world is falling apart and lois is trapped in a crevasse and being covered in dirt and you know it's the the spin the world back around to change time, which don't think about it too much, but it would definitely work. Uh, oh, it's Superman. <laughs> it's you Superman. Can do whatever Anything he wants. <laughs> but so uh, we really, they, he uses, it's so adorable because we see just like trains crashing and people getting run over, but it's all this model train, but we, it's, it's basically like the apocalypse, right? It's, it's a little callback to those. And it's, older Superman films. And it's just so nicely done. It's just and a it really helps sequence. to kind of telegraph the destruction that comes later in the film. Absolutely. Because you've already seen it on that smaller scale. And so you can right. sort of not be shown absolutely everything in great detail and still understand what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really great sequence. Um, I, I do love that Calpin just kind of stands there and stares at it the whole time. <laughs> he eventually runs away, but he's just like, Fascinated again. If I had known that he was a science reporter, might have made more sense. I don't know. Perhaps. Perhaps. But in any case, uh, so Lex is is experimenting. We do get some, you know, there's some good humor in this movie. Uh, you know, not just from Clark being goofy and dropping things or what have you, but even from Lex. Um, you know, in, in this sequence, once he starts seeing the reaction of the crystal, he just, you know, everything's gone dark and he just kind of backs away from everybody else. And then the next, and when the lights come up, he's like way behind everybody else standing <laughs> at the, standing at the wall. It's just a really good visual gag. It's a nice little joke. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a wonderful little, it's a wonderful little sequence and, and a reminder that Kevin Spacey in the right circumstances, you know, wasn't talented guy uh but in any case we we move very quickly it's also established that when the crystals do react initially they release what basically amounts to an emp and you know thinking back this may be one of the first superhero movies to to use the emp as a <laughs> now it's you know, just a catch-all <laughs> yeah now all of them do it um i guess 
I guess the Matrix sequels had come out, and they you know had a lot of EMP stuff in the Matrix movies. You know, oh, the Sentinels are coming. Use the EMP, you know, whatever. <laughs> so uh, it's certainly not the first, but it may have been the first to see it used so commonly in in the superhero genre, which now it's just a staple. Oh, use EMP uh, if you have a problem. But so it lets out an EMP burst, and uh, Lois, who is covering a jetliner that is capable of taking a space shuttle closer to space so that they don't have to use as much fuel, I think. Uh, she's testing that, and the EMP causes everything to go wrong. And, of course, this is our first big action set piece of the film. Because, of course, Superman is going to save Lois. No questions asked. It is exactly, uh, what, 34, 35 minutes in the film before this comes to a head? And he has yes. to save her? Yes. Um, this film is very long. <laughs> I don't know if we mentioned that, but it is very long. Yeah, we are we are 35 minutes into the movie before what could really be considered our first action set piece. On our first glimpse of, of him as Superman. Exactly. Yes. We've seen him was, do some Superman-y things, but he has not put on that suit yet. I was so like poised at the edge of my, my theater chair waiting for Superman to show up. I was like, I, I want to see him in this suit, damn it. I was yeah. so ready for that. Yeah, and and again, this feels like the Donner films, which... The same way, it may be even longer before you actually see the suit in the Donner one. Because in the Donner one, what, in revisiting not too long ago, it's been a while, a couple of years, I had completely forgotten that the first basically like 50 minutes of that movie is Superman in, in, in Kansas, right? It's like him growing up and, you know, eventually transitioning from a series of other actors into, you know, Christopher Reeve. And... It's it's a long time, but for a modern quote unquote action film, especially a modern superhero action film, this is a long time to wait. It's a really long time to wait, and you feel it, you really do. But it does make for a burst of exhilaration that's really like none other. Because this sequence, while many people claim that the action sequences were kind of staid and stoic and not really that great, um, this one is really good. Uh, it is executed nearly perfectly in terms of its visual presentation and and you know superman having to kind of figure out the puzzle of how to get the ship to straighten out so that, or get the plane to straighten out so that he can sort of control everything he has to separate the and, two so that it's not accelerating like there's a lot of really cool pieces the the lead up to him to him running down that alleyway to go and like rip his shirt off and become superman that's still i love that lead up that's such a great little anticipatory moment where you, you know, you know it's coming that he's going to show up. He's going to be Superman, right? Um, and and this is where the film really starts using score carefully as well because it does yeah. have a, an original score by John Ottman, right? John Ottman did not just take samples from the John Williams score, but they very carefully select where to use the well-known pieces, namely the, you know, like the. 
that little and, energizing beat. Right. And this is this is one of those moments, right, as Clark decides that he's going to go and, and rescue Lois. And he actually has a contemplative moment as he's deciding, right, implying that he wasn't fully sure that he was going to be Superman again, um, which I think is another potentially deleted subplot. Like, I think there was a scene at the farm where his mom is, is sort of encouraging him to, to, you know, resume his superhero work, if you want to call it that. And, and I don't think Clark wants to, I think he's wanting to just sort of reboot and just be Clark Kent, which of course we as an audience would know is impossible, but I think it implies that he is attempted to sort of move to a different, he's trying to move to a different place in his life. Um, and maybe to let Superman just be gone. But what he quickly realizes is that the world needs Superman, right? Which is this other thematic element that runs throughout the movie. Um, while he was away, Lois uh, has won the Pulitzer Prize, which, is, you know, okay, whatever. <laughs> Lois has won the, the Pulitzer Prize for writing a story why the world doesn't need Superman, which we never really get to see. It's never the article itself is never really discussed. We only really because know it's the, all lies. The title. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's heavily implied that in essence she was writing this kind of for herself, right? To convince herself that she didn't need Superman anymore, and you know that really it was about it was about that. Uh, at least I, I got that impression. I mean, you know, she's a good reporter. She's a decent writer. So I, I don't. I, I don't doubt that it absolutely had really good points about why having a red caped super guy running around fixing all the problems is bad. Like I, I think I don't think that's a hard argument to make. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, there's this real tension between them because she's basically said I, I don't need Superman in my life anymore, uh, and neither does the world. And so I, I think Clark is legitimately out of space where he's like, well, maybe they don't need me. Maybe I should just be Clark, right? Um, but then he's immediately sucked out of that, and we get our first, you know, Superman heroic scene. And I'll go ahead and say it. The plane scene is is fantastic. Like it's, it's beautiful. It's beautifully shot. Uh, there's a real sense of danger to Lois because she's out of her seat when it starts. And so oh, man. she you know, takes she, like briefcases to the head. It's intense. <laughs> yeah. I, there, there are a couple of hits in that where I'm like, Oh, she's dead. Like she should just be dead. Cause she flies, you know, 30 feet and then slams into the back wall of a jetliner. I'm like, no, you're, you're done. Your deck's broken. So there's, there's no saving no, you at this point. Superman saved her. <clears throat> but I, I like that she's in danger, right? She's not just strapped to a chair for the whole time. And, 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 you know, just we watch her head bounce around um, and then so, the, I mean, I, you know. the the plane hurtling toward the earth and, and Superman speeding to get in front of it is probably one of the coolest moments in the movie. Um, just thinking of it, like it's coming out, what is it? A baseball field? Yeah. They're, they're falling onto the metropolis baseball field, <laughs> uh, to interrupt the game. Which I love that anything that falls out of the sky in this movie lands in Metropolis. <laughs> anything. Anything that falls out of the sky, Metropolis is where it's going to hit. Uh, which I don't know if that's a testament to the size of Metropolis or just that everything interesting happens in the skies over Metropolis. But knowing the what little I know about... Metropolis. <laughs> knowing what little I know about orbital mechanics, 
it's very difficult to fall straight down <laughs> onto the baseball uh, field. onto the baseball field in in Metropolis when you were ostensibly flying in a plane that was going. I mean, I think she says they're supposed to hit the mesosphere. It's like, well, that's pretty high up there. You'd have to kind of travel a decent distance away. I don't think the plane took off from Metropolis and just went straight up. Um, but you never know. <laughs> but it, it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that would work. But yeah, the the scene is the the plane is sort of collapsing into the stadium, just straight down, and everybody's realizing what's happening. Uh, I think is a really cool moment because one thing that I think Singer does get right is there are some really good, in essence, just crowd reaction shots in this. Right, people seeing Superman, uh, which. The modern Superman movies, Man of Steel, they try to have those moments, but because Zack Snyder is so often obsessed with bombast and scale, they don't really have any impact, right? But there's a, a scene, one, I love the way Superman sounds when he's flying in this film, because while I have absolutely no reference point for this, <laughs> I honestly believe that that's what it would be like, because it's literally just a guy propelling himself through the air with his brain <laughs> and he has a cape you know that's it so what are you going to hear it's not like it's going to be a jet engine flying over you you're going to hear a marginal bit of air displacement and his cape flapping that's it and and i love that this does that whereas in in man of steel you know it's it's always he's flying at sonic boom speeds man. right it's it's everything <laughs> Right, which I'm like, I'm not sure that a human being being propelled through the air would sound like that. Um, and I always thought that Superman flew that fast when he wanted to, not just all the time. Not just forever, right? You know, because it's it's got to expend energy. It's not like you can do that without any consequence. I would think. But Superman whatever, does I mean. sleep sometimes. <laughs> he does. He gets tired. He gets sleepy. <laughs> Uh, again, I don't want to get too bogged down in, in the particulars of Superman's flight <laughs> Technicalities powers. of Superman. But I, I do enjoy that. I enjoy this film because there's a one shot about, it's towards the end after Superman is like, I guess in the first montage of Superman going around and like just doing Superman stuff. Where there's a bunch of people in the street and he's just flying overhead at, at a you know decent pace but not super fast. And you just hear like this, you know, it's it's... You know, very minimal, and and everybody's just kind of like looking up at the sky and watching him pass, and it's it's this really beautiful moment, and I think that's one thing that Singer does better than pretty much anyone else that's directed a Superman film, and I would even include Richard Donner in this one because he didn't have the technology to do those kinds of shots. Yeah, in in seventy eight and eighty one. So I mean, I I think. Singer is really good at capturing that grandiose, you know, like, wow. Like, I mean, the tagline of the original Superman was, you will believe a man can fly, right? Because that was the technology. That was the thing that they were going to show you because it hadn't been done before. And this movie takes that just to a whole nother level. Like, you'll see Superman fly and do all these really cool things in a very, very specific way. And, and I really like the approach. Um, it just it works for me in terms of how we we visualize Superman moving around the world, but I'll, I'll say that the airplane sequence is is maybe one of the best 
superhero rescue sequences in any film, any superhero movie. Like it's it works perfectly. It is Which very I'm... Superman. Because yeah, I think it's hard to present challenges for Superman. You know, I mean, what are you going to have Superman do that's going to be hard for him? And I think both of the major things that Superman is asked to do in this film fit that bill really well. Like they, they're things that you can feasibly believe being hard for Superman. Yeah. And that's, that's cool. I I like that. So after the airplane sequence is where I think the pacing issues of this movie begin, right? It's, it's, I'm not going to say it's rough getting to the airplane. It's, it's a little dull, but after that, it turns into a Daily Planet movie for far too long. Yeah. I um, mean, I, 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 I enjoy that stuff. Like, like I sure. said, I love, I love Clark Kent. He's, he might be my favorite thing about Superman. Because um, mm-hmm. I love that persona. I love, I love the way Christopher Reeve played it. And I love the way Brandon Routh plays it. Um, so I enjoy seeing that, but the movie does really slow down and do a lot of explaining because we have to get the backstory with Lois Lane and her relationship with, uh, Harry White's son. Was it Richard? Uh, Richard. Yeah. Uh, played Uh, by James Marsden, uh, who my son repeatedly referred to as donut Lord uh, (laughs) because, because that is what Sonic the Hedgehog calls him in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. (laughs) So he just kept saying, well, what about Donut Lord, Dad? Is he going to be okay? And I'm like, yeah, Donut Lord's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and Donut um, Lord is great in this movie. Marsden is excellent. Uh, so I guess we we could talk a little bit about Singer's transition into this film. Because uh, he had done X2. That's where he pitched his idea for a Superman film to the Donners and, and got on board. And he was already scheduled. He was in like the middle of a five or six movie deal with Fox and he broke it to go make this movie, mostly because there were a ton of problems with the script for X three, uh, X-Men United, I believe is the, and historically that did not go well. It did not. Uh, so singer left X three, even though he was originally slated to be the director that eventually fell to Brett Ratner, who, um, had competed for the original X-Men film against singer and singer won out over him. So I guess that was some kind of Hollywood comeuppance. I don't know. I have so many voluntary director sounds like you'll say a director's name and I'm just like, Oh, Brett Ratner is one of those. (laughs) Yeah. Brett, I I am not a Brett Ratner fan. I I do enjoy the rush hour films uh, a bit, uh, especially the second one. Yeah. The second one's really fun. Uh, and Ratner was responsible for those. Uh, very famously, he is a member of the Rat Pack Dune um, production group, which you'll see on a bunch of stuff. But uh, so X Men Three was was taking a while, and and what really this is kind of Singer's thing. He gets attached to a project, gets offered or or gets an idea for a different project, and then he just kind of ditches. And goes and does other things. Yeah. Uh, and he's done that pretty repeatedly since the mid-2000s. Uh, he settled down a bit to make a few more X-Men movies, uh, which I think he kind of had to do. But, uh, you know, very famously, he walked on Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, 
that was his film and he just kind of disappeared. Uh, I, I think he said that his, I want to say his mother got ill at that time. And, uh, he just kind of stopped coming to set. So I, Brian Singer's in a weird place in, in his career right now. I, I think for the most part, I think he's got a couple projects in development, but for the most part, like his career in film is, is kind of done. Uh, nobody really wants to work with him cause he's unreliable, but we kind of see other this, things <laughs> among other. Yeah, exactly. Unreliability is a much easier thing to say. We don't want to work with you than the alternative, I suppose. But, um, but we start seeing that here, right? So he, he jumps ship to Superman returns and he offers a part to James Marsden, uh, who is of course who he cast as Cyclops and Marsden was a relative unknown at that time. And so Marsden jumps to the chance to continue working with Brian Singer and to be in a Superman film. So this, this movie is why X3 doesn't have Cyclops in it. Uh, this is why they kill his character in the first few minutes of the movie is because he was committed to this and refused to come back to play Cyclops again. So the, the fate of Superman Returns and X3 are, are unfortunately inexplicably tied together. Uh, and ultimately, both of them are fair to Midland in terms of uh, superhero content. Um, and, and I wonder if, if Singer had stayed on X3, if he had continued to see that project through, if, if it would be a different movie. But you know, I guess we'll never know. But so Marsden is good in this flick. Uh, he is given a pretty thankless job of being the guy that Lois Lane is in love with that isn't Superman, uh, which, you know, nobody was asking for that character, I guess. So uh, he, he doesn't necessarily get a lot of love for it, but I think he is doing very well. Marsden is, is another one of those actors that is capable of just being a good dude. Right. And yeah, Richard he is, plays, he plays the affable guy. Yeah, and and Richard is is a good dude. Like he's he he's not happy to do it, but he understands if Lois needs to be with Superman instead of him. He's like, I I, I get it. Like it's fine. It's not like he's <laughs> he not going to be Superman. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's it, it's not like he's not going to be hurt by it, but he gets it, and and that is a, a rare thing. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, to to sort of get back on track, Superman. Attempts to reconnect with Lois as Clark. She she doesn't really seem interested in anything. And again, she's very dismissive to him, more so than I would expect. Because in the original Superman movies, like Lois and Clark go on a variety of adventures yeah, as well. Yeah, like they're well. friends. Yeah, they, they become buddies. Like she's not, they're not best friends. But in this movie, he, you know, I, I guess he says like, oh, you know, our relationship. And she's like, relationship? And and it just it was more flippant than I would have expected, you know, if they are trying to be respective of the history of of Clark and Lois. You know, again, they're not in love, but at the same time, they've worked together, they've known each other for a long time. So that was a little strange. But she she sort of rejects his advances, is not particularly interested in in talking to him. She's much more concerned with Superman's resurgence and uh you know, that kind of drives us to our next point. And probably one of the more problematic components of the film, which is that Superman 
is a really good stalker. Yeah. And uh, he has a lot of abilities and powers that if he was interested in seeing what you got up to in your private life, uh, he could absolutely 100% make that happen. And this this movie is very, very, very close to crossing some lines. Like it's, and it, and I'm not saying that like the the moments where Superman spies on Lois aren't creepy, but it, the movie does make a special, you know, point of not taking it as far as it could, almost to show us that Superman wouldn't do that, even though yeah. he totally, totally can. He totally can. <laughs> Um, so he, he finds Lois's house and he washes them with his x-ray vision and his super hearing, uh, sort of prepared dinner, right? And again, Marsden is, is charming and amiable and affable and, you know, tries to get Lois to admit her, her real feelings. References the article that she wrote about him back in Superman one. And, you know, so there's, there's some nice continuity moments here. But really, you can tell he's he's fishing, right? I need you to tell me what's going on, and I need you to tell me what you're. Where do I stand, right? Because if you're telling me that you're in love with Superman, I, I kind of need to know that. <laughs> I don't think I'm <laughs> because, ever going to be able to live up to Superman. Because what? Because yeah, I mean, I'm at a disadvantage here, an unfortunate reality. And Superman just kind of observes, and it's it it almost feels like. It almost feels like they wanted a justification to show Lois alone with her family. And they felt like they couldn't do that without Superman somehow connecting that tissue, which I don't think is necessary. Like, if you want us to see that Lois is struggling with her feelings for Superman, then just show us the dinner prep scene, and that's fine. Like, we don't necessarily have to have Superman observing that to, to as an audience, benefit from that information. But I guess the idea that Superman also needed to know kind of where Lois stands is, is in question. It does kind of help lead into the next part, because right after that, he sort of flies up, you know, he does his space flight thing, mm-hmm. and he's just sort of listening with his super hearing to all of this suffering and pain and sirens and alarms and gunshots and just these horrible, horrible sounds. And then there's that wonderful little moment of silence before he just opens his eyes and gets to work. And that's, it's um, it's nice because it feels like that rejection from Lois helped push him back into just, I'm going to be Superman now. Right. I'm Superman for everyone, not just for Lois Lane. Right. And, you know, this is, this is a good set of sequences. I mean, it's not really a montage. We get really kind of an extended, uh, there's some people robbing a bank, uh, which is good. I mean, you know, that's one of the things about the Marvel movies that I've, I both love and hate, right? I think Spider-Man, the spy, the two new Spider-Man movies get this better than most. But, you know, if you've spent any time reading comics, I mean, the bulk of what these superheroes are doing is like busting up bank robberies and preventing high-speed car chases. Like it's it's very pedestrian stuff. It's it's normal everyday kind of activity, uh, criminal activity that, you know, the comic books, especially classic comic books are doing. And and I really like seeing Superman just doing Superman stuff, 
right? Which, again, Man of Steel and the newer Zack Snyder ones have never been good at showing us that. Um, you know, Batman v Superman, which is, is really the one that kind of shows the Superman in his prime, you know, helping people. Even that fails miserably at, at really showing us. We get a lot of God imagery, right? We see Superman, you know, you know, having hands laid on him as he's come to help people and stuff. And Superman, you know, saving people on the top of a roof and a, a flood, you know, so we get those montages, but they don't, they don't feel like They're Superman very events. They're heavy handed. They're just, yeah. the God stuff. I mean, it, it like, it works for Superman cause he is, he, he is. he's like yeah. Jesus, you know, he, a little bit. Um, but no, no, that's too much. Like we already right. understand that Superman is a bit like God. We just we don't need that. <laughs> right, you don't have to keep telling us it over and over again, right? Like just establish the idea and then then go. Show us show us it in action, right? Um so the Superman busts up a bank robbery. Um these bank robbers for some reason have set up some kind of like Gatling gun. On the roof of the bank to fight the police. It, it <laughs> doesn't feel, make a lot of sense. It's, it seems like a lot of work. Old tiny just, villain's got a big gun. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a cool scene. Uh, it's very violent. It reminds me of uh, the Terminator taking out all the police cars in T2. You know, it's very much in that vein. But of course, you know, he's about to turn it on some... some wily security guards and Superman just shows up and, and is just, you know, having the bullets bounce off his chest. And, and it's a really good scene. Like it's really nicely done. Uh, maybe some excessive slow-mo if we're being honest that we wouldn't have to do. I think a lot of, I think a lot of Superman's powers actually hit better if he just sort of appears. Right. I think slowing him down into slow motion and seeing him kind of, we wheel his way in front of the bullets is, is kind of unnecessary. Just put him there, right? He's just fast enough to be there. And, and you know, we should be okay with that. So he faces down Gatling gun guy. And then I don't know if I would say this is the best shot in the movie. It's, it's one of the few things that we are shown that we've never really seen Superman do before. And that is he takes a bullet to the eye and it just crunches. Yeah. Uh. And he, so and then cool. he's got his little his little look after that where he's like, ha, gotcha. And it's it's just a it's a nice little moment, but unfortunately, man, they that was in the trailer. Like they completely spoiled that shot. Yeah. Like because they just showed everybody it in advance. Which whatever. Special effects. Di- <laughs> directors aren't always in control of the marketing in that fashion, but that just feel it feels like something that would have been way cooler to just kind of have dropped in your lap like whoa awesome you know his eyes are even bulletproof you know this would have been when kind of neat uh so superman's out doing a superman things rescuing folks helping people flying around and lex has concocted a plot to break into the metropolis uh, metropolis natural history museum and steal something important so <laughs> I guess we could talk a little bit about Parker Posey in this yes, movie. Um, yes. So I adore Parker, her. <laughs> she's, she's very good in this movie and, and unfortunately a pretty thankless role um, because in essence, she's playing Miss Tessmacher 
from the original uh, films. You know, Lex always has a a you know a, a dapper woman on his arm, and she is that dapper woman. Fortunately, I think she's given a bit more to do. Of course, very famously, famously in the original one, Superman is is chained up with the kryptonite around his chest. Is that what he, like he's chained and the kryptonite's on him, and so he's mm-hmm. drowning in the pool. And she dives in and kisses him and saves him. You know, Miss Tessmacher does, and and so you know, there's always this idea that she's the woman that Lex believes he's got total control of. You know, actually, sort of, you know turns to Superman in the the crucial moment. And so she's playing that character. Uh, Her name is Kitty Kowalski, in keeping with the alliterative naming convention of comic books. She's uh, the most anachronistic character in the entire film, and it's She is, yes. She feels completely unstuck from time. She's dressed like a, a 1940s... Like a nineteen forties femme fatale fashion model, and and her behavior is is completely modern and, <laughs> I mean, almost postmodern, really, because she's just a pastiche of all these things. I I love when they throw the crystal in the water in the train sequence. She's like, "Oh wow, that's incredible!" And, he's like, <laughs> and then she's just like, "He's just like, wait, wait for it." And, like, and then she waits a beat. She's like, "Oh that's wow, great, that's Lex. incredible!" <laughs> yeah. Like the those sequences, I think are are just wonderful. And Parker Posey, who has impeccable comic timing, um, pulls them off with with incredible skill. Uh, I, I of course love the um, Christopher Guest mockumentaries, and Parker Posey features uh, very largely in all of them, which I love. Uh, I particularly love her character in Best in Show. And the the screaming matches that she gets into with her <laughs> husband in that movie are just fantastic. And she has braces, and it, it's so good. Uh, my kids recognized her from Lost in Space, where the Netflix reboot, where she plays Doctor Smith, and she is oh. excellent. Yeah, uh, she's really good in that. And uh, my daughter, as soon as she was in it, she's like, "Is that Doctor Smith?" I'm like, "Yes, yes, it is." This is much earlier in her career, but she's just as good. Uh, but, uh, so Lex has concocted a plan and she is, is driving a very nice, like a 67 or 68 Mustang through the streets of Metropolis without brakes. And of course, Superman comes and saves her, which we find out is a distraction so that Superman is, uh, is out of the picture while they are stealing this important device or this important object from the museum. And in praise of of Brian Singer understanding Lex Luthor and his wigs, um, Kevin Spacey is finely wigged throughout the entire film. Very much so. Um, we d- we do get a little look at the the vast array of wigs that he has a little bit later in the movie, but yes, but he shows Lex up is... in like this long hair for just no apparent reason to break into the the Museum of Natural History, right? <laughs> As if he wouldn't be recognized without it. I mean, it's still like Luthor. Changes nothing like, else about his face, just adds a wig. Yeah, it's just <laughs> to put the wig on and I won't recognize him anymore. Which, you know, again, this movie, I think even one of my kids was like, do they really not recognize it's him, Dad? Is Are the glasses that enough? And I'm like, no, it's it's the mannerisms. It's And I, I do love a little bit later, we do get the scene where... Um, 
How Richard tall do you think is, Clark is. <laughs> yeah, Richard's kind of looking at Clark, being like, "How tall do you think he is?" And he, and he hears him, and then he just like does this goofy smile, like, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, so that they they just can't believe that Clark would be super. And they laugh so about it. That's the best thing. They laugh at him. Exactly. They laugh at the idea that Clark Kent could be Superman. And that means right. the disguise is working. It works, you know. But it's it's more than the glasses. It's it's the, the mannerisms and everything else. Which, uh, that was one thing, uh, apparently, that was a huge bone of contention as they were composing uh, the script for Man of Steel was if Lois Lane is that amazing a reporter then how would she not be able to figure out that Clark is Superman? And so in that movie, they ba- in those movies, they basically just dispense with the the ruse. Like everybody else, it works, but Lois understands that uh, he really is Superman, which I'm, I'm okay with. I mean, that's fine. Lois always ends up knowing eventually anyway, so how you want to get her to a place of knowing that he's Superman, I, I don't really care. Um, it's not that big of a deal. But we do get, uh, again, there's so many little callbacks. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of the difficult position that Ang Lee was in with the relationship between the Hulk movie that he was working on and the television show that was the predominant way that most people were familiar with the character. You know, I think this movie is, is straddling that same line where it's saying, okay, I have a new story to tell. But I have to at least acknowledge the fact that there are people in my audience who recognize this other Superman thing. And so we get a, a couple of sequences in the film where, well, the during the, the Mustang chase with Parker Posey, when he catches the car, he recreates the iconic pose from Action Comics, you know, yeah. the first Superman cover, right? He basically holds that pose and gets a picture of uh, a little kid with a camera phone takes a picture of him doing that pose. So we get a little nod there. Um, You know, there's a lot of small things. Uh, There's the the shot of all of them looking at a picture from Jimmy Olsen where they're trying to identify, uh, you know, he's got like this blur streaking through the sky and they're like, Hey, it's a bird. Oh, it's a plane. And then like Clark walks in and you know, that kind of stuff. And, it's it's trying to hit all of these familiar Superman beats and mostly succeeding at them, to be totally honest. I think that the movie, it's doing too much, but when you look at the individual pieces, all of it works. Just, it doesn't work in volume, right? Like, there's just too much of it going on. Um, you know, so we, we really, I guess we can't leave the daily planet subplot out completely, but in essence, Lois Lane spends most of the movie being angry because she's being tasked with writing about Superman when she wants to be writing about the blackout that caused the plane to crash because she knows it's an unnatural event. Something happened and she thinks she can run it down and Clark gets assigned that story and she has to write about Superman, which she wants to avoid at all costs. Uh, I do love, isn't there, there is a shot in there where like the kid figures out, like he sees a picture of Superman on the screen and then sees Clark at the same basic angle. <laughs> and then, and then, he then has like, like an asthma attack. And he has like an, <laughs> yeah, he's like, uh, uh, like he can't breathe to say what he's seeing, but he knows that, uh, you know, or at least he believes that Clark is Superman. So, I mean, there's a lot of little stuff in there that I think is really fun and, and Ralph plays it well. Uh, oh, oh, the spiral staircase scene. I have, we have to talk about this. 
this might have gotten the biggest laugh in my rewatch with my family of Parker Posey just stomping down those stairs and across the floor to slap Lex for you actually. Said I had to pretend the brakes were cut. <laughs> to cut the brake lines uh, on the car. I mean, it's just such a good scene. She's so angry and just the childish, you know, five-year-old angry toddler stomp across the floor is is just priceless. Um, uh, and I love Spacey's response, you know, like his, he completely whiffs trying to catch her hand to stop her from slapping him again. But I, I, I think, you know, again, Parker Posey is, is a key component of this movie kind of working, especially the Lex scenes. I think Lex without her in this movie would be absolutely boring. Um, you know, once Kevin Spacey starts chewing scenery at the end and he's yelling at people, maybe. But uh, I think Kitty really grounds him in some fun ways. That character needs somebody to bounce off of. Otherwise, his dialogue doesn't really have a purpose until he's confronting Superman. It's kind of hard for him to have a point. Yeah, totally. Like, it's it's perfectly understandable why, you know, she needs to be there. But really, all of this has been building. We haven't seen Superman again for 20-ish minutes. Uh, no Superman. And it's it's about time. So we're really rushing to Clark and Lois reconnecting, but Clark as Superman. So Lois heads to the roof. Uh, we find out she's redeveloped her smoking habit, which again is a callback to the original film. Uh, he was constantly chastising Margot Kidder for... Smoking when it was bad for her. And then in the original, didn't we get a shot of, like he X-rays her lungs and looks at the smoke going through? I God, don't I wanna, remember. I think so. But anyway, like you know, he he was always you know <laughs> against her smoking, and he does the same thing here. He blows out her lighter so she can't actually light it. And then he he takes her up and shows her the city from his perspective, and and sort of reveals like I I hear everything. Right. I hear a world that's crying out for someone to help them. You know, you say you don't need me and that's fine, but that's not what I'm hearing when I fly up here. And, and it's, it's a really gorgeous thing. Again, it's an obvious tonal reference to uh, Superman and Lois flying together the first time, which if we're, if we're looking at this, honestly, uh, it is, that's a really hard scene to watch in the original Donner. Yeah. Uh, just the voiceover from Margot Kidder being like, is this, what am I feeling? Is this, <laughs> is this love? Like I just, it, it's super, super cringy now. Uh, it's, it's beautifully shot. Like it looks really good, but I almost have to, it's to a very mute cheesy. the audio. It's just really cheesy. And very Superman 70s. Returns manages to avoid that level of cheese. It does. Yes. I mean, it skirts the line. A couple of times, I think, but it's it's not there. No, I mean Donner was sort of fully embracing the the over the top sort of comic book component, uh, and and Singer never really gets there, uh, not in that same way, you know, because he is trying to, as, as you said earlier, to to humanize Superman, to make Superman more accessible, to understand why he's doing the things that he does, and that he's his motivations are not always. I don't want to say pure, but 
that his motivations are not always about everyone, right? He has wants and desires as well, and and he wants to see them come to pass. But he's willing to sacrifice those things if he has to. And and that's why I think the character still feels like that, you know, 1940s rose gold character is that yes, he's more conflicted, but he's still reliable. And, and I think that that's a good thing. So, you know, moving forward, we don't want to get <clears throat> too bogged down. Superman and Lois do kind of reconnect, but it doesn't really go anywhere because, you know, she's with someone, she's together with another person and she's not just going to ditch them to, to be with Superman again, which, you know, this, if they were going to talk about the child, I, I think this would have been the place to start hinting at it. And maybe maybe there's some version of it that did, but it's so strange that Lois never mentions it in any form. But did they did she not remember that they had sex? Um did I mean from my perspective I I assumed that she didn't say anything because she wanted to continue her life as though Richard was the father figure and and not Superman. Sure. And that even for herself she didn't really want to acknowledge that because then it would mean that she does in fact need Superman. Yeah, it it immediately throws her her core conceit as a character into conflict if you know Superman is the father of her child. So, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a weird, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm okay with the child thing. Like, I really don't, I, I think it's an interesting thing to try and throw at Superman and see what happens. I love it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really don't, I, I just don't know why it's not a topic of conversation. I know she's trying to hide it from him and, and it's like a reveal, it's a twist or, or whatever. But even here, you know, just an, an acknowledgement, like, you know, but what about that night, you know, or whatever. Um, you know, Richard I mean, kind of says kiss. that they come very close. Yeah. So in any case, we're, we're kind of moving, they're trying to move their relationship forward a bit, but then everything gets derailed by Lex Luthor because Lois Lane investigative reporter goes snooping and winds up getting trapped on that boat, that beautiful, beautiful boat, glorious. May it always be. And now we shall have some glory shots of the boat. That's right, more boat shots. And and so she sneaks on board, which there is a, a cute line when they sneak on board where the kid's like, is this illegal? And she's like, no, yes. <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> it's, you know, like that kind of stuff, I, I think. There are some nice, you know, humor lines, some some well-placed ones. I don't know I if, really like when Lex Luthor yeah. sees her on the boat for the first time and he's brushing that his teeth. That is good. Oh, my gosh. Lord, Lord. Like, Lord that is Lord. That's that's perfect. That is a pitch perfect line delivery. <laughs> yes, that that is good. I I love you know Lex in this movie is pretty intense, but by far the scenes that work best with him are the ones where he. It's not that he's not still in control, right? He's, he's still dangerous, but where his his self image gets sent up. That's really the best moments with Lex in this movie. And and that is probably the best one, where he's just in a, a white bathrobe, obviously just fresh out of the shower, 
and brushing his teeth and he's like completely surprised by the presence of Lois Lane on his his uh his huge boat. Super boat. But here is is where the the plan gets revealed. I I really don't like the plot point of Lois Lane just walking onto somebody's boat in the assumption that it would be where things were happening. Like I, the, this movie does a good job of establishing Lois Lane as a great reporter, right? As a, as a really, really good journalist. It does more to establish her as a reporter <clears throat> than some of the other films. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. Even the Amy Adams ones, like I, those movies are terrible at showing the job of reporting. Um, you know, it's, she's in danger a couple of times and whatever, but this one actually shows like, I'm sitting at a phone. I am calling people. I'm looking through contacts. I'm looking at maps. I'm figuring out which substations triggered out, you know, like very specific, very, you know, actual reporting work, right? Because actual reporting is not running down a street with a microphone, trying to talk to somebody. It's, it's doing your homework, knowing your facts, doing that research. And so they do a good job of that. And then I, I'm expected to believe that she would just apropos of really nothing and no information, just walk onto a boat and be like, Oh, this is fine. You know, and she acknowledges it's wrong. Yes. But she still does it. So for, for me, it was when she took the kid with her. That was, yeah, that didn't make any yeah, sense to me. I, I could just... buy that. She would go on the boat, but she would risk her own life to uncover something. But that she had her kid with her, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, I was very much in the same, same position. Even I think my, uh, and I'm talking about my kids a lot this episode, but uh, I think my, my daughter looked at me and her face like screwed up. She's like, why would she take her kid? Like, leave him in the car. Take your because phone. Because she's a bad mother. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I said. I was like, well, she's kind of a bad mom. But <laughs> she's, she said, take your phone, leave the kid. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, well, you, you have a point. But the, the, the reality is, is that the movie needs them both to be there for the next sequence of plot events to take place. Um, and, and here's where I think as, as we transition, we're not into act three yet, but as we are attempting to push this train into act three territory, this is, this was a a really unfortunate screenwriting decision, but we need them here because Lex finally has to explain his plan. Uh, So let's talk about uh, the plan. So how dear sister, (laughs) Is Lex Luthor going to to get a leg up on Superman this time? What's well, he going to do? He is going to use some Kryptonian crystals to grow new land masses so that he can then sell off property to the highest bidder. <laughs> and have a tidy space to live for himself. Oh. <laughs> real estate and schemes. <laughs> real estate, baby. It's good to own land. Um, I like how... that the movie just went for it. They just went for it. They're yeah, like, it's screw it. Another real estate scam. <laughs> it's it's completely in keeping with the Gene Hackman version of the character. We can't really pretend that it's not. Um, again, I, I think part of it is that Spacey is much more threatening in this version than Gene Hackman ever was. Gene Hackman yeah. was threatening, but he was a buffoon. 
He plays uh, he a was, grumpy guy. Yeah, guy. you know, but but this one, Lex Luthor seems dangerous. He doesn't ever really do anything dangerous, but he has that air of, of menace about him. And to see this character that we're supposed to fear basically say, I'm going to be a Kryptonian slumlord. It's just, it falls a bit flat. It really does. And, and then it's not just that he's going to create a new landmass and then sell property on it. He's going to create a landmass that eventually grows to the size that it's going to destroy the United States in its entirety and and then everyone will be forced to relocate to Lex Land, I, I don't even know, Lutherville, something um, like that, and 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 live and and pay him money for you know he's going to take his cut as he says. This this is a dumb plan. Uh, yeah. To kill millions of people to have other millions of people then rent property from you is dumb. It's evil, so I mean check that box. But it is not a good plan and seems somewhat lacking in foresight. Especially given that at this point, while we have seen him perform some experimentation with you know the Kryptonian crystals, we've not seen him do any sort of large-scale testing to where I don't think he really knows what is going to happen. He has a suspicion. <clears throat> but he he doesn't know for sure, so I, it, this seems like an overly risky move. For it's Lex. it's a very old fashioned, old timey villain move. Um, it reminds me a lot of well, DC villains. That this is just how they behave. Um, yeah, you know, let's do the crazy thing that may kill us all, and we'll do it in the name of being a lunatic. It's true. I mean, it is a fairly common story structure in DC that you have these over-the-top villains who are trying to destroy the world, and they'll kill themselves in the process, and they're aware of that, but they just kind of go with it. And that's really what Lex is trying to do. So Lex is running a real estate scam. (laughs) Um, He's going to build a new continent out of the Kryptonian crystal mass and, and sell property at drastically raised rates but it's here in the next uh sequence uh, oh the other thing they do is they wrap the crystal in kryptonite so that the entire landmass will be infused with kryptonite so superman can't um, touch it so superman can't touch it this this is where the meme comes from the wrong meme because she says superman won't let you and he'll be like wrong uh so this is where that came from now, I, I do kind of wonder if it wouldn't have been better to have Lex use the crystals to try and build some kind of anti-Superman fortress mm. and lock himself in it. Sure, run his empire from relative safety, and then Superman and, and, has to figure out a way in. Yeah, and Superman has to stop that, but it's it was really the millions of people dying for a real estate scam that just couldn't wrap my head around yeah, I, mean, I wrapped it, my head around it. But right, I'm sorry. yeah. You you have to make a few logical leaps to accept that that seems like a willing, like a good trade off. So there's another EMP blast. Once they initiate that, uh, it shuts everything down, and basically everybody's trying to figure out where Lois is, and, and Lois is able to send 
in the most 2006 thing ever, a fax. She sends a fax. This boat out in the ocean, which has a fax machine. And, and one thing I know about most fax machines is that they have phones on them. And <laughs> they if sort they of are, require that to work. <laughs> and if, if they are connected to a phone line that would allow you to send a fax, then they would also be connected to a phone that you could take off the hook and let's sit there while you have a casual conversation indicating where you are. <laughs> so I appreciate that the fax sending scene is iconic and frightening as they are being threatened by a, a random bald goon in Lex's little cadre of people. But uh, there, I, I did just jump back to the scene to review, and there is indeed a phone attached to that fax machine. <laughs> What is that, that she, phone hooked up to? That she could have simply picked up and dialed that number or another number and said, I'm on a boat. Please come save me. It's a big boat. You can't miss it. Look for the but biggest in, boat in the ocean. Right. But instead she sends the longitude and latitude, which how would she know? doesn't matter. Um, yeah. and, and gets the information away. But she's discovered and the bad guy starts attacking her. And this is where we get the actual reveal that uh, the child, the boy, Jason, as he's called, uh, Jason, Jason L. Is that his name? Jason L. Is indeed Superman's kid because uh, he pushes, he flings a piano at a bad guy and smushes it. I do kind of like the, uh, you know, he's asthmatic, he's got all these problems. Uh, There's one thing I did enjoy about Man of Steel as well, is that they showed that the transition for Clark as his powers were developing was very difficult, right? It was challenging for him to learn how to control his impulses. And it seems like, you know, Superman's son, who I guess is half human, so maybe he's got different issues. But it seems like he's a little bit fragile in this state, but he certainly has some powers. And it's 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 cool. It was a neat scene. It's neat. Uh, again, I don't I don't have an issue with the child stuff. I, I think it's a a cool way to try and you know help Superman connect with the people around him. But I guess we have to address that this this movie created a lot of people who were extremely extremely angry about that. You know, and not just the super the the Kevin Smith guys who were like, oh, you know, well. It, when Superman came, he'd blow a hole in her or something, uh, which is, you know, okay, all right, sure, I guess we wouldn't know. But just how did this happen? And how did Superman, you know, was how was he unaware, you know, of this kind of thing? But in any case, the, the kid is Superman's kid. Lex quickly realizes that the kid is Superman's kid which pretty much lets him know right off the bat that Superman's on his way and they need to get the F out of there before he arrives, which I think is a another nice moment and played well from, from Spacey. But so really we're, we're now into the final action sequence of the movie. Um, as Lex begins growing the island, it splits the ocean floor, like the, the shift, and this, this crack in the floor sort of runs towards Metropolis and then it starts causing all this massive damage. And I liked the special effects in the scene a lot. I think just, you know, seeing the rumble, the glass breaking from the, the buildings shifting, uh, you know, all that stuff just works really, really well. 
And then again, we get a nice couple of montages of Superman just flying around doing super things, right? The glass is falling from the sky. He's going to hit it with heat vision, turn it into sand. He's going to use his uh, super breath to stop a gas leak explosion. And it's all really well done. It's all nicely executed. It's very exciting. And and usually I don't like films that have you know, overly long action sequences um, with a lot of chaos and destruction, but this one feels like not so much is happening in every scene that I'm overwhelmed. Um, everything kind of has a nice um, like action focal point for the scene rather than just being absolute chaos. For sure. And a lot of that I think has to do with singers i guess we want to call it directing style um singer has has a good understanding of choreographed action yeah and he never i mean granted most of this is cg you know he's not dealing with you know actors and fight scenes that have to look realistic i mean he's really you know superman catching buildings and stuff like that but one of the things that he does really, really well is help you understand where the character is. His takes are long, right? He doesn't devolve into super rapid editing for his action sequences. He keeps the takes long so you can you can read them. You, they're legible. You know what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's It's a really, really nice style. It's why I think he was kind of the perfect choice for the first couple X-Men movies because those could be chaos. And if you look at the shift from X2 to X3 and how the action was handled, it is obvious what Brian Singer tried to do and what, you know, a guy like Brett Ratner tries to do. Right. Um, and so I, I agree. I think the action in this is all really good. I think Superman in, in general, it's, it's, believable things that would happen and believable solutions to stop them or, or change them if they would need to. And I, I think that's really good because we're about to get into a component of the film where I think it is weak. And that is that unfortunately at the end of this movie, there are three characters who are desperate for important things to do. Yeah. And that is mainly Lois, Richard, and and the boy. Um, they their main goal is to escape, right? To get away from Lex, and and Richard's a big part of that. There's a really cool scene where Superman kind of pulls him out of the water, and and flies them into the air as the boat is sinking, and it's it's nice, it's really good, it's good musical cue over the top of it, everything. That comes back a little bit later because the kid doesn't he draw a picture of that moment? Yeah, you know for the for uh, Lois, you know so you know it's it's a good scene, but they're basically just trying to get away because the <coughs> the upheaval from Lex, you know, creating this new landmass is causing all kinds of problems, and they're escaped, and then they realize that. They have to go back because Superman doesn't know that the island is made of of kryptonite. And, so and no, I don't understand that because like he's gonna find that out real quick. <laughs> yeah, you you turning around your plane and going back is not going to assist him in that. Superman's uh, not an idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the moment he takes a punch, he's gonna know that something's wrong. 
and uh, you know he just got you you know helped you get away safely. You might want to you know, run with that kind of thing. And like the whole Clark, it's kryptonite. Like no shit, Sherlock. What yeah. else is it gonna be? Exactly. <laughs> we get it. But uh, so they do come back, and we get a, a pretty decent Superman beatdown scene. It's not the first time we've seen Superman get beat up. Right? It happens fairly frequently in these movies. You know, he reaches a low moment, or he's covered in kryptonite, or you know, some other technology is draining his powers. Whatever. But this one's particularly brutal. It's just these three, you know, stuntmen basically <laughs> just kind of throwing him around. Um, I think Parker Posey's really good in that scene. You know, she's obviously mortified by what's happening, and didn't. I, I really do buy that she had believed Lex that things wouldn't go this far, yeah. right? Like when Miss Tessmacher was surprised by stuff, I was like how are you surprised? Like that doesn't make sense. But in this case, I really do. I, I do get the impression that Kitty <clears throat> legitimately didn't think that Lex was going to go this far and, and then watches him sort of cross a line that, that even matters to her. And, and so that does sort of resonate. And I think a lot of that just has to do with Posey and her skill um, at, at playing this ridiculous character, but still grounding her in some real emotion. And, and uh, somehow making a very, very tertiary character into a, an actual character, like something that has has a lasting effect on the film when it really could have been a throwaway role. Yeah, and it had been in the past. You know, the Tessmacher character, while while she has some plot, you know, contrivance associated with her, is is generally a, get a couple of laughs out of it. But Parker Posey really does transition kitty into being a character that you kind of care about um my my daughter was consistently surprised that she was such good friends with the dogs he's like why does she like that cannibal dog like well, <laughs> she's she's not a great person herself she sympathizes right? with bad people exactly she understands that bad things aren't always bad because they're bad on the inside right they're bad because of circumstance they're bad because of uh you know a bad dice roll in some cases and then we get the shiv scene, right? Uh, Lex Luthor shivs Superman, like shower shivs And that hurts. Superman. Like, that hurts to watch. It's rough, man. Uh, it's, it's hard to, it is very hard to watch. He, he stabs him with a, a kryptonite knife and then breaks the blade off in his rib cage. And, and Superman is out of commission, right? Like, we've seen Superman injured from Kryptonite before, but nothing to that extent. Like, he is hurt badly by Lex and, and uh, dropped in the water. And I have a, a kind of strange little tangent off of this particular scene where he's getting beaten up and then he gets stabbed. It's very rainy and, and torrential weather on this, this little Krypton island thing. Um... Superman's suit looks so good in this mm. movie, and particularly in these scenes. Um, you know, a lot of drama is added to capes whenever a superhero has a cape. And I like that there's tons of drama with Superman's cape most of the time, but in these scenes, I love just the way the suit kind of hangs, and you you don't get that sort of billowing breeze in his cape. It's all just sort of wrapped around him because of all this horrible weather. And he's being beaten up and brutalized by these horrible people. 
he, it just looks so good. And like, it's, it's in praise of how great that suit design was just absolutely perfect. Still had the ketchup and mustard Superman, but it was so good. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people again, reacted negatively to the, the more dour color scheme, right? It's a little, it, it makes a ton of sense in these scenes because of the lighting, you know, everything's darker. So it, it all kind of, you know, shows up as more of a deep maroon than the bright red of the original Superman costume. But in general, I think the costuming of Superman in this film, which is really the only like extreme costuming, everything else is very, uh, is very natural, very normal. It's it's really good. Apparently, the suit was a nightmare. Uh, they made it out of a material that is is super tight and uncomfortable when you first put it on, and then the more you wear it, the looser it gets. Uh, it That's stretches weird. out, and and so they ended up having like two hundred of those suits. Because, like, you could basically wear it once, and that was it. Huh. Um, so just a, a really interesting material choice. But obviously, they were going for a, a particular aesthetic. Um, you know, obviously, the original Superman, is just, it's just spandex. Like, he's just wearing yeah. blue spandex. And, and it was fine for the time, but they knew that, you know, if they were going to keep the spandex look, they were going to have to update that material into something more modern. And and I think they did a good job. Of course, we get a gray variant of it right at the beginning uh, when he first gets back, uh, which is kind of cool. We really only see it for one scene, but it's it's still very good looking. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think it's a bit overdone, maybe. Um, I mean, there are S's everywhere on that suit. Like, it's all S's. I, I want to say even there there's a shot at the end, I think, when they're taking his uh, suit off to operate on him or try to operate on him. Uh, you can see that all of the little, like, details in it, uh, in the suit that are woven in, and, and I guess some case screen printed on top of, they're all little Superman S's. Everything is, is S's, just all over it. And I, that, Superman all the way down. Yeah, all the like, way down. Like, that might be a tad excessive for me, but... I love um, the super suit. I, I love yeah, when I'm it's totally. over the top. I love when it's... I love when Superman is feeling himself. I didn't like the Man of Steel approach because it just, it removed too much of the big style and kind of bombastic look that Superman has where he's, he's over the top. And I don't right. know, I like that. I like that the film kept that as best as it could without being too scary. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it's a nice, it's a nice modern update of a classic suit. I think some of the design choices and some of the elements that they chose to use were also influenced by not really the the Batman Begins Batman suit, but by the the '90s Batman suit, right? That the chest plate in particular being this kind of molded piece. It just feels like a choice that somebody made back in the '90s. Uh, even if you look at the you know Nick Cage behind the scenes stuff, they've got that molded chest plate you know, almost exactly like that. So I think somebody decided that, that was a good look for Superman's plate rather than it being, you know, screen printed on or, or sewn on as it was in the original. But no, I, I have no issues with the the way that Ralph looks in the super suit. I think that it's 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 very cool. Um and again, a bit darker, but I think it fits with the character and sort of where he's expected to be. Um, 
So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. I think it's it's very cool, and Ralph wears it well. I like that you know this is kind of the before times when you know the Marvel style ultra ripped superhero dudes were the norm. Um, you know, I kind of like the more Christopher Reeve you know, strong and, and well built, but not you know just bursting forth from his. Brandon Ralph is, is nice spandex, and beefcakey you know? in this. I like the way he looks. I like the way Christopher Reeve looks too. Uh, yeah, totally. It's it's no lie. I'm a big fan of Superman. <laughs> for sure, you know. But when we get to Cavill, I mean, Cavill is just it's he's ridiculous. He's like Arnold Schwarzenegger level. Right. It's like calm down, dude. <laughs> <clears throat> like the only and the only thing it really does is it puts the Clark persona into question, right? Because yeah. who would believe? That this mild mannered <laughs> cub reporter from Kansas is Superman, you right? Can't well, put glasses on Arnold Schwarzenegger and make him look no, like a, a geek. Like, when your when your biceps are thirty six inches around, somebody's gonna ask a question. Like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? You're not just curling soup cans over there. Do you man. like live at the gym? Yeah, like it's it's different. Like when he's in the super suit, obviously, you know, he fills it out well because you can tell they're they're sort of rounding and padding Ralph in in a few places. Uh, I think we saw a similar thing with the Shazam suit in, in that film, which I don't know if you've had a chance to watch that yet. I, I yeah. encourage you to. Shazam is actually a lot of fun. How Zachary Levi was? Uh, yes, yeah, he plays Shazam, and and he's good. He's really good. But they they did some some beefing up of his arms and chest to, now, to smooth that suit out. But. Now Brandon Routh has a really impressive physique because he was a model before he mm-hmm. was Superman. Um, <coughs> so a lot of that is is him. But but yeah, they they did. I think just the stiffness of the fabric kind of adds to that muscle shape and that kind of you know old fashioned looking superhero shape that he has. For sure. Um, but it's cool. I mean, it, you can tell they spent money on it. Uh, supposedly there was a, uh, there was a cut scene. I, I want to say it was between Cal and Jor-El, another one. Uh, you know, I mean, they threw money at this movie. There's no doubt. Cause that scene, I think I read that it, it ended up costing like $10 million to make it. And then they just cut it. <laughs> Which I, I cannot imagine justifying that to a film producer being like, we've spent $10 million on this. I'm like, well, yeah. Now so it is a DVD extra. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. Uh, all right. So we're kind of in the end game now. Uh, Lex realizes, uh, you know, Superman gets rescued. Uh, again, Richard, Lois, and the boy are looking for something to do. They rescue Superman. They pull out the shiv so that he's not being, you know, contained by the kryptonite anymore and he flies back and decides that he's going to lift the entire island that uh, Lex has created into the sky and, and throw it into space basically trying to get rid of it forever uh, and it's cool uh, we would eventually see a very similar series of events in Avengers the Age of Ultron almost beat for beat <laughs> we see it happen uh, we see Kitty finally betray Lex openly and she leaves uh, the uh, Kryptonian crystals behind as it's being raised up, and she and Lever escape. Uh, she and Lex are escaping in a helicopter, and uh, then we get a really—I mean, it's, it's a grand scene. 
of Superman lifting this massive, massive thing into the sky. It's um, still a technically impressive sequence in 2020. I think so, yes. This one holds up very well. Because the, the reveal of Superman, you expect him to kind of just be on the bottom of it, but what you find out is he's inside it and lifting it. And as the rocks kind of fall off and, and uh, you know some of them go back into the ocean, he is eventually sort of revealed as being in the center of it, just kind of lifting the whole thing up. <clears throat> so it's really and cool. I love like I mean, the, the, the crystals are like growing toward him and you can see him like struggling and getting weaker. It's just it's a nice shot. Nice yeah, it's all around. It's really good. Um, you know, we get a sense that Superman is actually in danger for doing this, right? Like he is in trouble, but he can't stop. Right? He can't give up, which is is very neat. So of course he's successful, but he falls back down to earth, and we get a very long Beautiful. shot of him, you know, crashing to the planet, and literally just everyone stopping everything that they're doing and just watching him fall and uh you know we get the crater shot of him you know landing in the crater and he's not decimated but you know he's in trouble and i i suppose there are those who would question ending a superman movie with superman in the icu <laughs> but it, it is a bold choice it allows them to address you know the the superman is dead storyline uh, of course, I guess it's with Perry a little bit later that he's prepared the two headlines, right? The Superman lives or Superman is dead. That is a great moment. That's <clears throat> such a great moment in the movie. Because you really don't know where it's going to go. You're not really sure. I mean, Superman can't be dead, but you're not sure what the movie's going to do at that point. Right. And it's it's a testament to the fact that even though Brian Singer has been playing it fairly safe in terms of Lex Luthor and Superman's actions, that... You don't, you don't know for sure what the end outcome is going to be, right? Even though it seems like you should. I think if you are invested in this film at this stage, you're, you're not sure. So the next piece of the puzzle has to be laid out. Superman is, in, is uh, recovering in the hospital, and finally Lois Lane goes to him and reveals for sure that Jason is his son. <clears throat> so he has the information now that he is uh, a father, right? What he uh, he had in Jonathan Kent, but as far as being able to train his son, you know, he's going to have that opportunity now. So we get uh, Lois trying to write a new article called "Why the World Does Need Superman," and and then we get Stalker Superman again. Yeah. <laughs> and Superman is is in the kid's bedroom, and he recites the series of lines from Jor El about Niagara Father Falls. Uh, yeah, the father becomes the son. The son becomes the father. The father becomes the son. Um, you know the, these iconic lines now, and he just you know repeats them to his own son. That was so sweet. It was good. And, uh, and you know, then, I usually hate shit like that. <laughs> I do. Yeah, and that yeah. moment got me. I mean, it's, it, it very, very quickly could have descended into pure schmaltz, um, which there's nothing wrong with schmaltz. Uh, you know, I, I come from the, the school of Spielberg schmaltz, and I'm, I'm fine with Spielberg schmaltz. I like 
getting to the end of something like Ready Player One, which is mostly sort of unoffensive fare, and then just everything works out for everybody, and a good music from the 80s plays, and you just kind of leave the theater feeling nice. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And this could have become that very easily, and it would have been fine. But it, it really toes the line up against it, and I think a lot of it has to do with Routh selling the scene very well. And and you sort of get the the sincerity of it, which keeps yeah. it from you know devolving into something just goofy, and and creating a real emotional impact, right? Like really caring about what's happening, uh, which is why again I didn't mind the sun angle, right? It, it really does give Superman new emotional ground to try and cover that we've never really seen him cover before. But all of it builds to you know one last shot of. You know, Superman in orbit, doing his Superman thing, as they might say in the Matrix film. But it also allows us to have a another sort of tonally resonant shot of Superman flying above the curvature of the planet, pretty much exactly from Superman one. <clears throat> uh, and that's it. So I mean, again, this is this was intended to be the first of another set of Superman movies. Ralph has, was contracted to come back and do at least one more, uh, which of course didn't happen. And this really does feel like setting the stage for a new Superman story, potentially with you know this super kid, who I imagine that their initial plan was probably to eventually transition him into the Superboy role. Even though Superboy is, is not Superman's yeah. son, but the, the films, you know, they don't care. They can do what they want. <clears throat> right. And, uh, you know, we, we come to a close in these very, this very sort of optimistic, up, uplifting moment. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much it. Again, there's, there's not a ton in this movie that we wouldn't expect to find in a Superman movie. Uh, it's, it's very much what we would want or, or think we would expect with a few sort of uncharacteristic twists thrown in that may be remnants of larger plot threads that were just kind of summarily deleted, but it's hard to say. Um, all right, well, let's, let's sort of, you know, think about our, our final thoughts here. We've kind of covered the movie fairly exhaustively, so I think we've hit most of the areas we usually try to. Um, you know, I, I think production design and setting are, are pretty awesome for this. Metropolis is a great setting. It's it's New York, so it's varied. It's interesting. The buildings are cool looking. Uh, I did love the the specific rendering of the Daily Planet building. Very, very careful to keep the globe, the spin, the font. All of that was just dead perfect, uh, which speaks to the fact that the production design of this movie is pretty immaculate all the way through. But, um, you know, if we're talking about weaknesses, which we'll, we'll get to the one thing here in a minute, but if we're talking about overall weaknesses, obviously the runtime, it's a significant issue. It needs to be at least half an hour shorter. Um, and, and I don't think that would be that hard to get to, even if you kept this basic cut as the framework. I think you take out the Superman stalker stuff, Maybe keep the last scene, but do it when the kid's awake. Uh, well, I know he can't do it when he's awake, but maybe just do it in a different way where he's not just standing in a sleeping kid's bedroom. 
You that know, part, I don't know. That part didn't creep me out as That's much. not as bad. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, your parents watch you sleeping. That's just, apparently it's, a it's just a weird thing that parents it's, do. It is know? a thing. Yeah, 100%. So that one, I don't know. That didn't disturb me as much as the, the lowest parts. But I think so. we could definitely take some of the reporter investigations out of it. You know, there's there's certainly places to trim, but I don't I don't want to nitpick the film on those. But it is a film that feels far too long for what you're getting out of it. Um, you know, where are you spending your money in this movie? Um, I would think you want to spend it with a, a character named Superman doing super things. You know, <clears throat> so I, I totally get that, but. The music is incredible. Uh, the themes are incorporated brilliantly and carefully. You know, they're not just splashed everywhere. You know, every time Superman comes on screen, you don't hear the the Superman theme. It's it's used very carefully. I think Ottman does a good job with the original Williams themes. And the characters and the, the acting across the board are pretty solid. You know, Routh especially. For being a young actor, he's he's really doing a good job. You can tell he Superman. really did his homework on yeah. Christopher Reeve. He's swinging for the fences, man. He's trying as hard as he can to make this thing work, and he and he pretty well succeeds. Um, but even the supporting cast, as we mentioned, James Marsden, very good. Kate Bosworth, a lot of people thought she was too young to play Lois Lane. She was only twenty two when she made this. It does not carry um, herself as as a young actress. I mean that. I was shocked when I learned that. Yeah, I don't think she's bad. Not at all. Um, I think she's actually a, a pretty convincing Lois Lane. I, Ironically, Amy Adams read to be this Lois Lane as well. And uh, then didn't get it until the Man of Steel uh, films. Uh, I like Amy Adams' Lois Lane for the most part. I think the Lois Lane in those films is much weaker than this one. I think Amy Adams might have done a good job with this particular rendition of Lois Lane, but <clears throat> it's it's hard to say. Uh, I, but like I, I like Amy Adams in Nora Ephron movies, so I, I don't really know how to handle her as Lois Lane all the time. She's not my favorite. Sure, uh, it's I don't know. Lois could I think could be a deceptively difficult character to play. You know, she's intelligent. She's savvy. She's careful, but she's also got this bold streak, and and she's, I mean, honestly, she's a little bit reckless. Yeah, I, and I think you know, Margot Kidder was just she's the best, <laughs> kind of perfect for that character, and it's it's hard to to think of that character in any other terms, you know. All right, well, let's uh, let's move into one thing. We've we've been talking for quite a while. Of course, we did have our Dune minute, so that was probably yeah. Part of it. <laughs> um, but uh, so let's talk about the one thing. What do we need to change with Superman Returns to move it from middling failure to smashing success? Um, I'm not going to say runtime because I feel that's very obvious. Mm. I feel like some restructuring to the plot in terms of of how Lex Luthor fits into it needed to happen. There just needs to be a little bit more linkage, a little bit more connective tissue in that script to to understand (laughs) why Lex Luthor is being the bad guy in this case. Um, The real estate scam was probably the thinnest part of the plot for me. 
A lot of other things right. felt nitpicky, but that part just really felt flat. Totally. I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. I think even though Lex Luthor is like the villain in Superman's universe, this movie doesn't feel like it has a strong central villain. Yeah. Um, mostly because the two of them are operating independently of each other for 70 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Just kind of doing their own thing. And they're obviously crossing over with the EMP bursts and all that stuff. But like Superman doesn't even realize that his crystals have been stolen until 50 minutes into the movie. And, you know, there, and there's really no, apart from that, that confrontation where Superman's you know, infected with kryptonite and he can't do anything. They don't really have any scenes together, you know, because um, Lex escapes the island and then they just wind up on a deserted island, right? Yeah. Superman doesn't bring him to justice. He's just on a deserted island. And so there's there's no real closure there as well, which is kind of strange. I mean, if you want to, you know, you can put Lex in jail and just get out again. It's not a big deal. You know, it's, it's not that That's I... It's like putting the Joker in Arkham. Right, you know, it's like it doesn't matter. It's a temporary assignment. <clears throat> but I guess for me, uh, my one thing, apart from the the you know Lex Luthor plot being weak, I think I would have rathered them spend more time and introduce earlier that Superman has a son. I think it actually would have worked better for the story in this movie for Superman to learn on the rooftop of the daily planet that he has a son. It would have made all of those daily planet sequences more interesting. Yeah. Cause now there's tension, right? Cause now Clark knows something about the boy that's hovering around while they're all kind of just goofing off at the office. Without that, it's just, he's hot after Lois still. Yeah. It's all about their Lois relationship. But once he understands that the you know the boy is, is his son. He sort of is a he seems okay with letting Lois go, right? That, because he's that, not alone in the universe anymore. Exactly. Right. I mean, this he's, was this this was solving the entire problem of of Superman's character in the film is that he is utterly alone and he can't relate to anyone. Right, you know, the the film opens with his mother telling him, well, even if your planet is destroyed, you're not alone. But you can tell he doesn't buy it. It's like, yeah. no, I am. Like, there's no, one, there's no one else like me. Right? I know you love me, but there's no one else like me. And, you know, Superman, of course, I mean, if, if you follow the Superman mythos, there are tons of other Kryptonians still running around. <laughs> but, you know, this Superman at this point in time doesn't know that. So just feeling that actual connection to another member of your <clears throat> species, I guess, would have been important. But I think knowing that he had a son would have reframed a lot of his activities yeah. in the film, right? To to protect, to keep him safe, to teach him, to talk to him. Uh, I think it would have opened up more opportunities to to more sort of emotionally engage with, the, with those characters. Because... Once we get to, you know, Lois and the kid on the boat, they're sort of an afterthought for the rest of the yeah. movie. You know, they give us this interesting point that the character has to deal with, and then it doesn't really go anywhere. So I would have liked to see that develop faster and then see how Superman wrestles with it 
over a longer period of time. I'm fine with the movie still ending the way that it does with him, you know, sort of going into his room and telling him, you know, I'm going to be your dad and, and we're going to do this together. You know, you're going to feel alone, but everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that, but I want to see him. He really gets to that point from her whispering it in his ear when he's in a, some kind of like coma and then he just knows, and this is his behavior. I would have liked to see him grow with a little yeah. bit more. And if you're really trying to humanize Superman as a character, that's that's how you do it. It's that's a good way to do it. That. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that was kind of my my thing on the rewatch. I was like, man, I, I want more of that. Um, but maybe that was their caution. Maybe they didn't know how people were going to take it, and so they wanted to be as minimal with it as possible, so you could ignore it somehow, maybe. Um, but it, to me, it seems like if you're going to swing, go ahead and swing to hit it over the fence, right? Don't hold back, you know? So, so that's me, but so now the really difficult one, because we've, we've acknowledged this is a problematic movie for a bunch of reasons. Uh, it's development, the people who produced it and some start in it, uh, have done some things we've also got some other issues with the the runtime and also sort of the overall approach to a few of the aspects of the film so <clears throat> recommend and what's your score i recommend this film um regardless of you know what's come to light about people who made it and people who are in it um and looking past a lot of the film's laws. I mean, you know, that is what we do here. But with this film in particular, if if you like comic book movies and you're invested in like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I feel like this is this is a neat entry into superhero films. Um I feel about this movie not as strongly as I as I feel about like like Angley's Hulk. Um Mm-hmm. I feel very, very strongly about that movie. Uh, but this, I feel like this is a solid B. This is like an 80 for me. Where I, just, I feel good about this movie. I loved it when I saw it. I think I saw this in the theater four times, which given how long it is, I don't know what possessed me to That's do that. But I just kept it's seeing it. like a whole it. day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I definitely recommend it. I think that it is a lovely tribute to... Not only the Richard Donner films, which are iconic, but it's a lovely tribute to just Superman himself. And it's sort of the last look at this kind of Superman before we entered this really dark and dreary period of DC films. Um, Yeah. And it's important to see DC movies when they weren't like that. Right. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I would almost go as far as to say myself that it's the last good Superman movie. Yeah. Um, and and I and I say that as somebody that doesn't hate the Zack Snyder interpretation. Like I said, I completely understand what they were going for. I just doesn't think I don't think that it works as well as it could have um, on a variety of levels. And we might talk about Man of Steel at some point. Uh, it wasn't really a failure. It did quite well, but. Um, it failed me. <laughs> uh, it's there are people who believe that it is a, a huge failure, and I'm I'm kind of on that line. Like I said, I I enjoy it. I, I like what it's throwing down for the most part in terms of trying to realistically deal with somebody being this way in our world. But 
there are a lot of things about it that are pretty problematic. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty close. I, this is still a recommend for me. Like, uh, as, as a person who loves comic book movies and movies based on comic book characters, Superman ranks very high for me in terms of, of these types of films. Uh, the Donner films are my favorites by far. Uh, I can still watch them despite some of the cheese components of them now. And this feels like the last time that we got even a marginally upbeat Superman that looks good, has some awesome special effects and action sequences. And, you know, it's it's a, a really, really interesting film in the history of Superman on screen uh, because it's trying desperately to do some of the things that we're still trying to do with Superman in terms of humanizing his character and bringing him to the masses in a way that feels believable. But it may be one of the last ones to really do so with even a marginal amount of success. Uh, so recommend for me as well. Uh, I am definitely in the same sort of like CV range. This is about a, a 75 for me. It's not fantastic. It is, it is difficult to sit through at times. Uh, so don't be afraid to skip a scene that seems to be dragging, I guess. But there are five or six really, really awesome Superman moments in here. And I think with a bit more editing and a little bit more time in the hopper, even though it took quite a bit of time to get this one out, uh, I think it could have been something really incredible, potentially. Well, all right. Uh, where can you be found on social media? Like I said, we recommend this one. Go check it out. Uh, it's, it's worth your time. If you have an HBO Max subscription, you can watch it there for... Uh, it's not free, I guess, but you can watch it. Uh, so I would definitely check it out if you get the chance. But uh, where can you be found on social media? Let's, let's wrap this one up. It's been a long one. Yeah. Um, I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. Uh, very nice. Uh, I can be found at T Baskin. That's the best place to get me. Uh, we also have our F Peace Theater at Twitter and FailurePeace at gmail.com if you want to reach out and drop us a line. Uh, well, as uh, Catherine said earlier, she is working with Void Point Games as their community manager, so that's what we're up to. Uh, I am working on a couple of short stories that I hope to have out for some publication before too long, so lots of that stuff going on too. But as we bring this one to a close, thanks for checking out our episode on Superman Returns. And as always, remember, film's not really a failure if it's loved. Just like Superman Returns, we love you too. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.